G'day, mate. Forty here, and I have an exciting moral crusade for you. It's not going to actually make much difference in the real world, but you're going to feel great. And isn't that what's important, right? We're all about the feels. But uh, first of all, I, exciting news: just bought a new Norelco electric shaver. So I spent about forty dollars, and a pretty good close shave, wouldn't wouldn't you say? It's a kosher electric shaver. So you're not allowed to use a razor, according to the Torah. But uh, you can use the, the Norelco shavers. They're kosher electric shavers. So I just got this for 40 bucks. Uh, about 90, 95% uh, effective. There are a lot of little white hairs that uh, it's not quite picking up. But uh, that's what I got. So this is the Norelco I bought nine years ago. So, so I'd say this, because I never got it sharpened. I'd say this is you know, 300 times more effective than what I've been using. So you get uh, you get the pleasure of, of seeing this fresh face here. And then even more exciting news for me. You wouldn't believe what I found on Amazon.com. These are so delicious. Nut harvest, nut and chocolate. All right? It's OU. It's, it's, it's kosher. It's certified by the Orthodox Union. It's got peanuts, chocolates, uh, raisins, almonds, and cashews. So nut and chocolate. This is so delicious. And I found this for the ridiculously low price of like $3.70 on Amazon Fresh. So I bought like 10 of these because I can get like 10 meals out of this. So normally I spend about 5 6 $7 a meal. But uh, with nut and harvest, nut and chocolate on, on Amazon Fresh, I'm spending, I'm spending about 40 cents a meal. Uh, all I need is a little almond milk to, to wash it down. But I mean, it's so delicious. And so three tablespoons, 150 calories. So I get a meal with one cup. So I am fueled. I am doing this show with this one cup of uh, nut chocolate. And so here's what it provides with, with three tablespoons, 150 calories. So I assume with, with one cup, that, that's about, what, 1,000 calories? And as I'm, I'm walking or riding my bike about uh, 10 miles a day, so burning up the calories. So three tablespoons, you get 10 grams of fat, you get uh, 12 grams of carbs, and uh, you get four grams of protein. So I, I, all I know is I feel great after I eat my nut chocolate from Amazon. I can't believe just, just $3.70. I mean, this is unbelievable because normally when you, when you buy this on Amazon, it's between $15 and $20. I'm getting these for $3.70. It's, it's amazing. Okay, great, great, exciting moral crusade for you. I've been reading a lot of books this week. And I think my favorite book this week is The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History. It's by this left-wing Yale historian of the law named Samuel Moyne. And just a lot of insights into this book on things I didn't know before, such as why we got this explosion of human rights in the late 1970s. There was, prior to that, very little discussion of human rights. The, the rights of man that we got at the end of the 18th century with the American and French revolutions, this was with regard to rights that are secured by a nation state. But human rights are things that are extolled up and above nation states, that uh, nation states are judged on the basis of their ability to uh, secure and to provide our human rights. Here is this author, his name is Samuel as, as Ben said, uh, it's a tough transition, but I'm gonna uh, 
ask what the problem is with human rights, what progressives or socialists should think about them. And uh, as he said, I'm, I'm going to suggest they're good things, but not good enough, not enough on their own. So let me start in the past, since I'm basically a historian, uh, with the beginning of the human rights phenomenon and, and movement as we know it. Uh, which uh, occurred in the 1970s. And I'd like to start with a speech that a Czech dissident uh, named Zdena Tominova uh, gave. Uh, she uh, was born in Prague uh, and she uh, uh, grew up uh, as a child under uh, the new communist regime starting in, in the mid 40s. Uh, and yet she became a dissident and indeed she helped co-found uh, really the, the one of the most famous new human rights outfits of the 19th. Okay, so why have we had this explosion in human rights? Right, and insights that I would not have had. This author points out that the human rights crusade emerged out of the distrust of utopia together with the desire to have one anyway. So the human rights crusade emerged out of the failures of all the other utopias, such as anti-colonialism, Marxism, all that good stuff. Like all the other utopias and pretty much all utopias are on the left, they all failed. And human beings have a desire for utopia and people on the right are more often religious and so they get their utopian desires met in in their religion. So every religion has is, is filled with utopias. But what do people who are secular on the left do? They need a utopia, but they recognize belatedly that uh, all attempts at achieving utopia in this world have failed miserably. So the, the smarter ones realize we can't trust utopias anymore, but we desire to have one anyway, right? So you have groups like Amnesty International, which emerged out of a connection with British intelligence in the 1960s, and also out of Christian responses to the Cold War. And then it made this slow, awkward transformation into being a celebrated human rights organization. So its founder was Peter Benenson, who had all these ties to British intelligence. And he improvised this path along with other Christian peace uh, movements because why did he do this? He wanted to provide a new outlet for idealists disappointed by Cold War stalemate, <laughs> right? So it's not, it's not really about making a difference in this world. It's not really about making this world a, a better place. It's not really about being effective. It's about providing an outlet for idealists, very much like this show. So the rest of your life may be disappointing, but you can come onto this show and in the chat you can idealize all you like. So the whole point of the Human Rights Crusade and Amnesty International is to provide an outlet for idealists disappointed by Cold War stalemate, by the failures of socialism and communism and anti-colonialism. After the failure of all these left-wing utopian experiments, okay, here's an outlet. Here is something you can get excited about. Here is something that you can wrap yourself in. So politics has let you down so you can wrap yourself in the moral. And it, it's really easy to do. So, so the whole, this is, this is what Benenson said in uh, 1961, that the underlying purpose of this campaign, which I, he says, I hope never gets published, 
is to find a common base upon which the idealists of the world can cooperate. So that's what human rights are all about. It's a common place where all the idealists of the world can cooperate, people who are disappointed by politics, and so they can embrace the moral. Right? It is designed in particular to absorb the latent enthusiasm of great numbers of such idealists who have, since the eclipse of socialism, become increasingly frustrated. Similarly, it is geared to appeal to the young searching for an ideal. Okay, my mic is scratchy. Sorry about that. In the 70s that was invoking that concept, uh, she uh, suffered for it. She had her head smashed into the pavement uh, by secret police. And as a result, she was invited by the regime to take a vacation that later became permanent. And at that time, around 1980, she gave a talk in Dublin uh, and she surprised her listeners uh, there because she didn't denounce communism exactly and definitely not socialism. Uh, she said that it was terrible that a socialism had become an alibi for the denial of some basic human rights, like the right to free speak, speak freely and, and organize. Uh, but she also recalled what it had meant to be taken beyond a class society in her childhood of the 1940s. And in particular, to feel what it was like to uh, have the same privileges as everyone else. Um, no more than anyone else, but also... Okay, let's, uh, let's see how I do now with uh, just a few adjustments to my audio setup. Okay, so... The whole purpose of the human rights crusade is to provide a place for idealists who have otherwise been frustrated, particularly the young searching for an ideal. And so Amnesty International, the, the whole outlet that Amnesty International would provide, according to its founder, was to a home for idealists and its effects on victims, unimportant. Unimportant. The actual effect on the victims is unimportant. Wow. So he said, it matters more to harness the enthusiasm of the helpers, right? much more important than making a difference in the real world. The real martyrs prefer to suffer. And as I would add, the real saints are no worse off in prison than anywhere on this earth. So what's happening in the real world, not particularly important, but at least it provides an outlet for idealists. And I think this is a great insight into a lot of uh, political activism. And social activism, it's not really, and religious activism is not really about making a difference in this world. It's about doing something that makes me feel amazing. So think about many of the people in the American uh, Foreign Service, Amer many Americans who go into diplomacy, right? For them to feel important, right, it helps to have an activist America that's, that's just poking its beak, you know, all over God's green acre. That's very exciting. That makes them feel important. That gives them a you know, raison d'etre to get up in the morning, but not necessarily in the best interests of the United States. So, number one, the whole point of the human rights crusade is not to make a difference in the real world. It's not to make a difference on the ground. It's not part of some larger process of constructing international laws or international norms. What human rights crusades do, first of all, and primarily, and what they do best, is to give meaning to engaged lives, to give a home to idealists. All right, and uh, chat says Luke tied this into status. So yeah, people want status, 
And so being in the foreign service and intervening all over God's green acre, that can be a source of status. Uh, being a human rights campaigner among many groups is a source of uh, status. So not a lot required to become a human rights campaigner, right? It's minimalism was its enabling condition. And uh, its source of power was that all the other post-1960s alternatives were dying. So there was this woman, Jerry Labor, who would go on to found Helsinki, later Human Rights Watch. But uh, she recorded in the early 1970s, she never heard the phrase human rights. She was trained in Russian studies, but it was not Soviet activism that hooked her, but a searing December 1973 New Republic essay written by Amnesty International activists on the renaissance of torture around the world. It led her to want to do something about it. Now, did she actually do something about it and make a, a practical difference in the real world? No, not really. She had been a part-time food writer for the New York Times. So now she placed an op-ed in the New York Times based on Amnesty International information. And uh, she found a successful formula, which she noted in her memoir. Always helps to have a formula. So I have a formula. I wait until I get excited about something. Right? It takes a tremendous amount of energy and enthusiasm to, to do a stream. It takes even more energy and more enthusiasm than may come to me naturally to do a good stream. So prior to, to doing this stream, I was out on a walk. I was listening to the last part of the new book, Aftermath, about uh, Germany in the 10 years after World War II. And as I was listening to the book, I suddenly got excited about ideas. And I thought, oh, I'll do a show and I want to share some, some of these thoughts. And so that's my formula. Usually I wait until I'm excited about something. And then I also have... Uh, backed up uh, copyright-free talks, usually by academics in the background that I can play if my mic gets scratchy or I get tired or I need to play off uh, something and I, I don't have a guest, then, then I have a formula for doing the show and people in human rights activism, they have a formula too. So she began with a detailed description of a horrible form of torture then she explained where it was happening then she explained the political context in which it occurred and then she ends with a plea to show the offending government that the world is watching. Right? That's the formula for human rights activism. So if human rights made any historical difference, it was in their competitive survival as a motivating ideology. Right? In the confusing tumult of the 1960s, 1970s, you have all these left-wing utopian social movements, and uh, all the others pretty much fail. All the others become an embarrassment. And so there's this widespread desire in the human heart for utopia. People on the right tend to get it in religion. People on the left uh, need some sort of secular cause. So this is a desire to drop utopia and have one anyway. It is the substitution of a plausible form of morality for failed politics. So today it seems self-evident that the whole purpose of international law is to protect individual human rights. But prior to the 1970s, that was not much of a concern in international law. It was absent from the concerns of people practicing international law. So now, post the 1970s, post the human rights revolution, it's no longer the laws of nations. It's no longer really international law as traditionally conceived that has their attention, it is the law of human rights. It's one of the most striking transformations in modern law and legal history, and it really only began in the late 
1970s, well, the International Law Party only began in the 1990s. So nothing in the prehistory of international law through World War II up through the 1970s provides a ground for this development of making its primary focus human rights. So there would be no way to believe or even to guess in 1975 that human rights would become the touchstone of international law. So this development did not draw from the humane spirit of our American founders centuries ago, did not develop out of a recoil against the Holocaust or other war atrocities. Human rights for international lawyers are rooted in a startling and recent departure. Here's an opportunity for status, is an opportunity to reach for utopia without uh, getting embarrassed. And another fascinating testament to the breakthrough of human rights is the response of philosophers. So philosophers don't tend to base their work on the, the developments of other disciplines. Philosophers tend to base their work on a feeling, and then they reason about their feelings that they have. So philosophers are usually... Philosophers and ethicists are usually last to the game. So philosophers, <laughs> they were initially confused by this new development of human rights. And, uh, and then they just assimilated them to their natural law, natural rights principles that, uh, that they revived and they just called them human rights. But natural law and the, the rights of man prior to the 1970s, this was conceived as something that can really only be brought about by a nation state. And still to this day, uh, human rights really in meaning in daily life are only something that can be brought about by the nation state. But the human rights movement sets up human rights up against the nation state and judges nation states of their abilities or lack thereof to fulfill ever-changing notions of human rights. So I know you love Samuel Moyne. No fewer. Um, uh, she wasn't illusioned about what communist rule was like, but she said it would also be terrible if we let the idea of human rights replace socialism and become a kind of alibi for the abandonment of socialism and especially the redistribution of income and wealth and all the good things that we get from having them. Well, that hope that she expressed that we could get human rights and socialism together uh, now that there was a movement transnationally defending human rights is not what happened. In fact, if you look at, at just the history of language. Okay, let's have a look at the chat. Luke, tie this into status, right? Status is the higher status form of pronouncing status. Left-wingers love to intellectualize why their core political beliefs always fail. Well, I think we all intellectualize why our core beliefs fail. I don't think it's more prevalent on the left. So they take backhanded compliments as religion provides utopianism and community. It is a cope and a cognitive dissonance. Well, you, you could say the same thing about religion or many other movements. You still get to feel supercilious even though you are wrong. Well, everybody, not just people on the left, we're all built to find ways that we can favorably compare ourselves to others. Now, you could look at my life objectively and you'd say, Luke, in the following seven key ways, you are failing your peers. But my mind works in ways that I keep, keep rotating in my mind until I can find an angle, a perspective by which I'm better than my peers. That's just part of the human condition. Now, this, this need to feel superior to everyone else can be stronger or weaker. 
So if basically if you're connected with other people, then your need to feel superior to them, I think, will be diminished compared to if you're largely isolated and failing and humbled and humiliated by life, then you will have a much greater necessity for coping with your failures. And so you'll have a much more extreme need to think yourself superior. You'll be much more vulnerable to believing in superstitions, conspiracy theories, because you're failing at human connection. You'll have to intellectualize a meaning in life and you'll be coming to it from a place of desperation, which will not usually lead to good results. Let's send all human rights activists to Mars to bless those bigoted Martians with progress. Human rights is another form of environmental utopianism. Luke needs some chat heckling to get back in the groove of live streaming. It's fallen upon me to do the mitzvah. Uh, at the chart I want to show you, you, you have to imagine this Czech dissident saying basically, oh shit. Uh, just when she was speaking, the idea of socialism in language and English, but Google allows us to check all languages, or at least a, a lot of them, uh, that idea of socialism was peaking. Now, all that means is that people were saying the word uh, way more often than ever before and now even. Uh, they could have been for or against it, but socialism, the word was 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 prominent in language. Human rights. So remember about a year ago, I was doing all these videos about Hans Fryer because he had a trajectory that was incredibly typical of 20th century German intellectuals. So like uh, Karl Schmidt, he grew up religious, except that Hans Fry, I believe, grew up in a Protestant home. Then he went to university still believing in God, but after a year in university, he stopped believing in God and he needed a substitute, so he looked for a substitute for God in historiography, the, the story of history. And so he developed philosophies about the stories of history. And uh, German and French intellectuals, they tend to generalize from the, the general to the specific. So they tend to engage in deductive reasoning. So French and German intellectuals come up with a ton more theories than Anglo intellectuals. Anglos tend to engage in inductive reasoning from the specific to the general. So in a typical uh, paper by some French or German intellectual, they'll present some grand theory and then they'll provide some uh, examples of evidence pointing towards their theory. In a typical Anglo paper, they will provide example after example after example after example, and then very tentatively and in very few words, you know, start to inch towards a, a possible theory. So Hans Freyer grew up religious, I believe, a Protestant in Germany, went to university, lost his faith, replaced it with uh, a faith in history, that history was unfolding in certain ways, he became quite uh, close to National Socialism. Then when the National Socialists finally took power, he, he fell out with National Socialism. After World War II, the, the only jobs really available for him were at Christian printing presses. And so he kind of uh, came up with, did he, did he abandon this deductive, you know, grand theory approach to his scholarship? No, he, he then came out with new grand theories, kind of rooting the European experience in, in Christianity. So this is a common... Common journey. I think Karl Schmidt said that the the fifteenth and the sixteenth centuries, maybe into the seventeenth century, were ages of religion. The eighteenth century, the age of uh, theism or deism. Nineteenth uh, century, the age of, uh, of laissez-faire economics, and twentieth uh, century, nineteenth and twentieth centuries are the ages of nationalism. So the meaning that many people used to get from religion, uh, they now get often from national identity. 
had never been. Uh, and yet at that very moment when she spoke, socialism was about to tank uh, and human rights was about to skyrocket. Uh, and my generation, since I'm assuming that most listeners are, are much younger than me, really surfed on that wave of, of enthusiasm for human rights, talking a lot about them and a lot more about human rights than about socialism. Um, and that change, as you see, occurred in, in the 1970s. Um, so why did that happen? I mean, that's basically what I want to ask and give you some ideas. Um, uh, it's a complicated uh, story, but uh, I think it was a loss. Now, that that data I showed you only goes up to around 2008. Uh, and we know that a lot so changed. So this guy's now, a socialist. That, 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 uh, that doesn't kind of reflect what's happening in our time with Bernie and Basker and uh, all the rest who have made socialism something live again. Uh, it wasn't in my youth. Uh, and it's an extraordinary thing. And yet, I think we can say that uh, uh, we're still living in a kind of age of human rights where lots of people focus their reform aspirations and energies, if they mobilize, around some set of basic rights, which they define in some way or other. Um, so I'm going to tell a little story about what happened in that recent period. But we should obviously acknowledge that even if that phrase human rights uh, really were some of the only people who use it uh, in kind of the broad sweep of, of history, the idea of rights is old. Um, you know, what we say about human rights depends, has to depend on how we define that idea, um, what content we give it. Um, at the very least, we would say that there's a very old idea that individuals, because they're human, have some non-negotiable entitlements that their community and state can't. Right. So you can find this in the Torah and you can find this in the, the Declaration of Independence. But again, these are always rights that are contingent, favorite academic word and a favorite word of mine, upon a particular people. So there are two common approaches to understanding rights. Uh, one approach is the classical liberal approach that we're born with certain inalienable rights, which you hear that language in the Declaration of Independence. And then there's the national approach that says whatever rights that we have or are born with entirely dependent upon the state of the nation, the circumstances that you're living in, and whatever rights that the nation can afford to you. So one is an individualist approach that individuals are born with certain inalienable rights. The other is a national approach, a tribal approach, a group approach. And so I think it's much more useful to look at people as being born into a tribe or a nation. And then their rights will depend upon the circumstances of that nation. So, for example, many of the rights that we've taken for granted uh, or disappeared during, during COVID, right? Because rights, like everything else, are contingent. And wokeism, that is also contingent, right? You may think that you know your friend Shmuel is woke, or your friend uh, Rachel is is woke, and that just defines them. But wokeism, like many things else, is dependent on context. So you could have looked at uh, Europe as being incredibly woke and uh, crazed about green energy and unable to meet their energy needs uh, through through their green energy schemes, and now you see Europe turning away from the woke approach to energy and becoming incredibly pragmatic. They're extending the life of nuclear power plants in Germany. They are looking to import a lot more coal. They are you know, looking to fossil fuels to meet their emergency energy needs now that they're no longer going to be getting liquid natural gas or getting it in as many, much quantity as they expected from, from Russia. You change the situation and the wokeism with regard to the European approach to energy just drops off. And it's that way for many, many people. You, you may think your neighbors are woke, but in LA, there's a substantial recall against the uh, George Soros-backed uh, left-wing district attorney 
Gascon, and this recall is being led by Hollywood. And you think, oh, Hollywood is work. Yeah, but even work people don't want to be inundated by rising crime rates and astronomical rates of, of homelessness and seeing people, you know, get away with abhorrent behavior. So many people who are who are liberal are supporting and funding this recall against the district attorney. So they were woke until circumstances changed, right? The district attorney was elected, then came the summer of George Floyd, then came the, the massive increase in uh, crime rates. And so many people who are quite liberal or left-wing with regard to crime have now changed due to circumstances. And so in England, between World War I and World War II, there was a discussion at Oxford University, would you be willing to sacrifice your life to save or to fight for your country? And many of the, the, the leading English intellectuals at Oxford University voted no. But when the time came, when the Second World War rolled around, they awoke from their woke utopia and they went to war and they fought and they died. So you may think of yourself as shy and introverted, but in certain situations, you, you could be extroverted and outgoing. And I may think of myself as extroverted, but when I'm lacking in confidence or in certain awkward situations, I'm introverted. Uh, you may think of yourself as an honest person, but there are going to be lots of situations where you're going to be downright dishonest. You may think of yourself as kind and considerate, but there'll be lots of circumstances where you'll be you know, harsh and selfish. So there are no global moral traits. Uh, the, the most that you can say are that uh, morals tend to be domain-specific. So maybe with regard to your taxes, you're consistently honest. Maybe with regard to business, you're consistently honest. Maybe with regard to sexual fidelity, you're consistently honest. But even if those are all true, there are going to be other domains of your life where you're not so honest. And so too with uh, political stances, you may be for less government or you may be for you know a left-wing work approach whatever your type of politics, when the circumstances change or when you change, then your political inclinations will often shift along with the change in circumstance. Okay, what are the implications for Taiwan for, from this invasion of the Ukraine? So number one, the big difference is that uh, Taiwan is 100 miles away from China. So sending, sending troops on ships to invade a place is very challenging. And 100 miles is a long way. The U.S. is committed to defending Taiwan. There isn't really the strategic ambiguity. We are committed to defending Taiwan. And so it would take several hours for Chinese troops to cross the 100 miles of open ocean to get to Taiwan. And uh, they would be highly vulnerable to American planes and missiles and uh, planes and missiles coming from Taiwan. So that's a big, big difference. I don't think China is capable of invading Taiwan right now. Also, uh, Chairman Xi has a big conference where he wants to be reelected, and so he's not going to risk that. But uh, maybe later this decade, I've heard, I've heard what uh, Peter Zion say, probably at one in three chance that uh, China may try to distract from its problems by invading Taiwan. So here's Stephen Cochran talking with uh, Peter Robinson at... Hoover Institute. Stephen, China. Let me, an event and then a quotation. Here's the event. Taipei 101, which is the tallest building in Taiwan, illuminated in blue and yellow, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. Now that, of course, if you're in the middle of Taiwan, 
you don't illuminate your tallest building in blue and yellow just to support Ukraine. You do that as an act of defiance against the People's Republic of China. Second, here's the quotation. This again comes from an email by a certain Stephen Kotkin of a couple days ago. The implications for dealing with Taiwan fight back, kick China out of the global financial system, close your airspace to its plane, sanction its top officials. What do you know? An entire playbook, close quote. Now, again, you were being impish in that, in that email, but you were suggesting that what has taken place already in these first few days gives us something that we can use in parallel if China moves on Taiwan. You're Xi Jinping. You see blue and yellow on Taipei one on yes Taipei one hundred one is the name of the skyscraper. You have an intellectual like Stephen Kotkin saying, "Look at this." How does Xi Jinping respond? How should he respond? It's very interesting, Peter, and it's the biggest part of the story. Ninety-five percent of this right now is about Ukraine and Russia. Ninety-five percent of this long term is about Taiwan and China. War is tragic, and the Ukrainians are paying a very high price. And we must admit that many people in Russia, including Russian conscripts, but their families back home, are also paying a very high price for this war and would rather the war didn't happen and are against the war. Some are courageous enough to protest, and others don't have, not everyone can be, let's say, Andrei Sakharov in a crisis. So this tragic. But tragedy is also opportunity, and it's also opportunity in multiple directions. So in a war, you get to test out your weapons. You get to test out stuff and see how it works, not in a tabletop exercise, not in a computer simulation, but in the real world. Can you sanction the central bank of a very large economy and not destabilize your own international financial system. We're just we're right. What, what if uh, Russia starts cutting our under undersea cables? I mean, Russia could retaliate against us in in ways that aren't aren't reaching public discussion and could be absolutely devastating to our economy. Experimenting with that right now, and we're learning the answer to that. And so many of the techniques that we're now employing against Russia potentially could be employed against China. And we know that, and the Chinese know that. Moreover, Xi Jinping is now a dictator, an autocrat like Putin. And right, so 90% plus of our communication goes through undersea cables, right? Russian submarines can go around and cut those cables. If we're going to cut off Russia from the rest of the world, from the rest of the world's banking system and commercial system, then why would Russia not retaliate? If they cut those undersea cables, our economies would be wrecked. And it takes very little effort to cut undersea cables, takes a great deal of effort to reconstruct undersea cables, and then very little effort again to cut them. And you can't protect thousands and thousands of miles of undersea cables effectively. If Russia wants to cut those cables, they can. And, and life as we know it would come to a halt. And he may not get uh, information delivered to him that he doesn't want to hear. We don't know what it looks like on the inside in China. But we do know what happens retrospectively with autocracies that fall.
that they get narrower and narrower. People don't bring bad or negative information to the ruler, and the ruler begins to make even more mistakes. The corrective mechanisms aren't there. So the important thing about Ukraine is its implications for Taiwan, because Taiwan is 10 times more important to us than Ukraine. Uh, 93% of the world's most important computer chips are manufactured in Taiwan. Uh, the, the most powerful part of the world, right, with the, the most powerful economies and militaries is no longer Europe, it's Northeast Asia. And so the West coming together to cripple Russia's economy, it's, its importance is largely in what it signals to Chairman Xi and China. This is what we will do to China if it tries to attack Taiwan. China would be cut off from the international banking system and commercial system, and it wouldn't take many destroyers to completely end uh, China's ability to import energy and to import anything else that it needs, right? For goods like energy to get into China, they have to go by sea. They have to go usually past India, past uh, Indonesia, past Singapore, past Australia. Uh, the Japanese Navy is, is capable of ending China's ability to import energy and other goods. Uh, Australia could do it. Uh, India could do it. The United States could do it. As they are in collective rule, even under an authoritarian system. And so the Chinese elites can see this and they can ask them. And uh, chat says we have satellites. Look, if they cut the cables underwater, can we not just use satellites? Well, the internet that I'm relying on right now and that you're using right now is not coming from satellites, it's coming from undersea cables. So no, you can't replace 90% of our communication mechanisms just by satellites, right? It primarily comes from underground cables. So the question, well, is it possible Xi Jinping miscalculates because he's making decisions by himself without consulting and without considering the full range of information? Is it possible the West is not a paper tiger, but is actually pretty strong and that the West can do things that we didn't fully understand they could do? And moreover, they have the resolve to do that. Is it possible that Taiwanese might not capitulate, but might resist an invasion? Is it possible that that resistance by the Taiwanese might galvanize the rest of the world? And so, yeah, this is an opportunity, a lesson for everyone in real time. There are some differences, though, Peter. Mm -hmm. Ukraine is a 40 million and Taiwan is a 20-something million population. Ukraine is connected by Russia as well as Belarus, Crimea, by land. And so this is a land invasion we're seeing here. Taiwan is an island. And so you're talking about an amphibious landing, which is a much different proposition than just rolling across someone's border, tanks and artillery and armored personnel carriers. Amphibious landings, fighting on the water is the hardest thing to do. And we know that not just from World War II. We think Normandy was easy and went really well because it succeeded. But if you were involved in the planning, and if you were there on the beaches, you know how difficult to pull off something like that is. And so there are differences. We don't. We want to be careful, not equating the situation. Ukraine's economy was maybe 180 billion. 
prior to the invasion, Taiwan's is over 800 billion. Taiwan supplies 93% of high-end chips globally, 93% share of the high-end chips. Ukraine doesn't have an industry like that to compare it to. Taiwan is very far from Poland, which has stood tall, from Germany, which as you said, is transformed, and I could go on. And so it may not be the same, but it does give a lot of food for thought in Washington and Beijing. It's very important that Taiwan's uh, freedom be defended, but the status quo is our power. The status quo is failing for Beijing, but it's working for the free world. Because the mistake that we made, that we would integrate China, communist China economically, and it would transform them politically, modernization style, which of course didn't work. They're still the communist Chinese regime. The communists in Beijing made the same mistake vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. We'll integrate them economically and they'll get to love us and want to be part of us. And in fact, the opposite has happened. And this is even before the crushing of freedom in Hong Kong, which we've all witnessed and the Taiwanese have witnessed living right there. Even before that, the polls had indicated that on the island of Taiwan, fewer and fewer people identified as Chinese. Fewer and fewer people identified as Chinese-Taiwanese combination and more and more identified as solely Taiwanese and wanted to have nothing to do with mainland China. And so, so the Chinese, this, the yes, Chinese thought time was on their side and they were exactly wrong. Time so, was moving against them in Taiwan. Is that correct? Yes. What, what right. Xi Jinping did in Beijing is what Putin did in Moscow. Putin made Ukraine more nationalist, less pro-Russian. For the first time in its history, Putin created a consolidated Ukrainian idea across all of Ukraine in ways that it had been ambivalent before and split, divided, partly pro-Russian. And Xi Jinping's repressions have done the same on Taiwan. He's done the opposite of what he intended. And so, Peter, my point is this, he's made Taiwan more Taiwanese. And so the status quo is working for us. Strategic ambiguity is working for us. It's the communist Chinese who need to change the status quo, which is failing for them. They want to be revisionist. They want to get back Taiwan. We want Taiwan to continue to be self-governing and continue to be moving farther and farther away. So the importance of status quo is the equivalent of fighting on offense or defense. So Clausewitz, the, the great Russian uh, war strategist, he, he made the point that you need, need to succeed on offense probably at least three times as many troops as the defense has. So the U.S. is able, and the West in general, are able to fight on defense because the status quo favors them. From association with Beijing. And so let us not upset the status quo. Let us defend the status quo and let's accuse 
Beijing of being the ones that want to upset. It's like you want to make a change to your life. It takes a lot of energy, right? It takes three times as much energy to make some kind of dramatic change in your life, change jobs, change spouse, uh, move, right? One reason I didn't move to Sydney, Australia, even though I absolutely loved it when I was in Sydney, Australia, it takes so much energy and strength uh, and, and, and you have to work through your fears to move to the other side of the world. And so it's so much easier just operating on the status quo rather than on upending the status quo, whether it's in your personal life or in international relations. Status quo. Back to Ukraine, Stephen. And now we come. We're on day eight. Every, things are changing hour by hour. Okay, let's get something here from John Mearsheimer. So Mearsheimer has become... Uh, very widely viewed over the past couple of months. His lectures on why the Ukraine crisis is the West fault are getting millions of views. He's getting over a thousand emails a day. And his is a very lonely position, all right? Not many people in the West or in America want to say that uh, Ukraine is America's fault, that the, the invasion by Russia of Ukraine, how is that America's fault? Well, that's the the whole argument that uh, John Mishaim has been making for over 15 years. A real war. This is not just a civil war in eastern Ukraine, which is what we had before February 24th. Uh, we now have a real war. So this brings us to the question of what is the conventional wisdom? And this is John Mishaim speaking yesterday, March 3rd. On this subject. And how do I think about the opposing argument? The opposing argument is that this has nothing to do with NATO expansion. It's really quite remarkable. When, when you listen to people in the administration speak, uh, and when you read uh, editorials in, in the Washington Post, uh, words like this are spoken. This has absolutely nothing to do with NATO expansion. I, I don't know how anybody can say that. The Russians have been saying since April 2008 that this is all about NATO expansion, that NATO expansion into Ukraine is an existential threat to them. But Americans simply refuse to believe that. Not all Americans, but many Americans, and certainly the policy elite in this country. And instead, what they have done is they've created a story that is not American policy. It's not NATO expansion that's driving this train. Instead, it's Vladimir Putin. And it's the fact that Vladimir Putin is either bent on recreating the Soviet Union, or he's interested in creating a greater Russia. But whichever one of those two outcomes you take, he is ultimately an expansionist. He's on the march. And thank God we expanded NATO, because if we hadn't expanded NATO, he'd probably be in Berlin by now, if not Paris. This is the basic argument. Uh, he is an aggressor. There are a number of problems with that argument. First of all, before February 22nd, 2014, nobody was arguing that he was aggressor. Nobody was arguing that NATO expansion was required for the purposes of containing Russia before February 22nd, 2014. Uh, we didn't think he was a problem. And in fact, when the crisis broke out on February 22nd, 2014, we were actually shocked. If you go back and look at the newspapers at the time, the Obama administration was caught with its pants down. Why? Because they didn't think that the Ukraine, uh, excuse me, that the Russians were aggressive. But of course, we had to invent the story after the crisis broke out so that we weren't blamed for what happened. We had to blame the Russians. So we created the story. Second reason you want to doubt this is that it's really easy to create a story where you're not to blame. So just think about some mistake you've made. Now, often you've immediately come up with a story. It just that's just the natural way that our mind works, whether as individuals or as groups, right? Uh, Jews, blacks, homosexuals, Ukrainians, Russians. Nobody wants to primarily think about to what extent am I responsible for my own problems? Putin has never said that he is bent on recreating uh the soviet union or he's bent on creating a greater russia he's never 
And uh, John Mearsheimer did a long interview in the latest New Yorker. He said he was bent on conquering Ukraine and integrating it into Russia. There's no question that in his heart, he thinks that uh, it would be appropriate for Ukraine to be part of Russia. In his heart, he's made it clear he'd love back to bring back the Soviet Union. But he's also explicitly said that in his head, he fully understands that this is a bad idea. So if you look at what he said, there's no reason to think he's bent on recreating the Soviet Union or creating the greater Russia to take this a step further. He doesn't have the capability. He doesn't have the capability for two reasons. First of all, he doesn't have a big enough military. This is a country whose gross national product is smaller than Texas's, right? This is not the former Soviet Union in its heyday. Furthermore, the Russians understand that occupying country and occupying countries or occupying territory in Eastern Europe is a prescription for big trouble. Most of us on this call are old enough to remember the Cold War and all the trouble that the Soviets had. Think East Germany, 1953, Hungary, 1956, Czechoslovakia, 1968, constant trouble with the Poles. And one could argue that the Romanians and the Albanians were the biggest pain in the necks they ever faced. The Russians are surely sophisticated enough to know that not only do they not have the capability, but that occupying Ukraine, occupying the Baltic states would be like swallowing a porcupine. This would be crazy. So I think there's hardly any evidence to support that. And the final point I'd make is if you look at what the Russians are doing militarily in Ukraine at the moment, it does not look like they're bent on conquering the country and occupying it and integrating it into a greater Russia. But anyway, here we are. And I think everybody is very interested in the question of where we go from here. So let me say a few words about that. First of all, let me start with U.S. policy. U.S. policy is to double down. That's what we're going to do. This is what we did after 2014. So Mishima makes the point that emotionally, of course, Vladimir Putin wants Russia to be powerful, to have power akin to what the Soviet Union had. It doesn't mean that he wants to uh, recreate the Soviet Union, but he certainly would like that power. And so where exactly he, he stops after Ukraine is not clear, but uh, Putin doesn't really have the resources to occupy Ukraine on an ongoing basis. So Putin has to reach some kind of accommodation with Ukraine, and uh, Putin doesn't have the resources to to take over Europe, all right? It's, it's not like the Soviet Union. Instead of reevaluating and saying maybe NATO expansion is not such a good idea, we went in the opposite direction. This is why I'm telling you that by 2021, the Russians understood that we were turning Ukraine into a de facto member of NATO. They understood that. Uh, so what we did after 2014, so the conventional wisdom is Ukraine's not a part of NATO, but Ukraine was becoming a de facto part of NATO, all right? There's de jure and de facto, right? De jure is what's literally true by the law, and de facto is what is in essence true. And in essence, Ukraine was rapidly becoming essentially, unofficially, a part of NATO. And when Mishima talks about how we just keep doubling down, doubling down in the West, it just reminds me so much of my own life, right? When when I get rattled, say when I've been rattled at work, then I get more nervous, more fearful, and I make more mistakes. And that leads to a downward spiral where I get scared, I make more mistakes, I get even more scared, and things just spiral down. So uh, when I've offended people in my real life, then I've been much more likely to offend someone else. It's like when you're swiping through Tinder or J-Swipe, if you... If you swipe yes on someone, all right, you're much more likely to swipe yes on the next person just by habit, right? So things spiral in life. There are virtuous spirals and destructive spirals. The West is in a destructive spiral vis-a-vis -vis Russia over Ukraine. 14 is double down. And what we're going to do now and what we're doing now is doubling down. And what does that mean? We're encouraging the Ukrainians to resist. We're not going to fight for them, you understand. We're going to fight to the last Ukrainian, but we're not going to do any of the... 
Right. So the media emphasis is on how brave the Ukrainians are and essentially the underlying emotional ethos is, isn't it great how the Ukrainians are fighting for their country? But by fighting for their country, thousands of Ukrainians are dying and the cities are going to get destroyed, as opposed if they simply surrendered, then they wouldn't have had this loss of life. When uh, Ukrainians have surrendered a city, didn't fight over a city, then Russia was able to take that city and they didn't destroy it. So I'm not telling the Ukrainians what they ought to do, but there's a big downside for the Ukrainians fighting. And uh, there's a downside for them simply surrendering too. But Russia is not looking to make major civilian casualties. Like Russia's been fairly careful, try to minimize civilian casualties. But if the war drags on, uh, Russia will be less and less discriminating and more and more likely to just absolutely destroy everything in their path. That was the Russian approach in World War II is to just lay down a tremendous amount of artillery to simply destroy everything in their path. And they have the capability of doing the same thing today. Fighting. They're on their own in that regard. But we're going to arm them and do what we can to train them at this late date and hope that they can. And Rodney Martin says, yes, Putin can occupy Ukraine. Putin will use Ukrainian resources to govern Ukraine. The main resource that he will need to occupy Ukraine are fighting troops. And he can't use Ukrainians to, to do that work. Rodney says, Western economies are taking huge hits in terms of fuel costs and inflation. Western markets are taking a huge hit too. They can hang in there uh, and, uh, and duke it out with the Russians. And nobody believes they're going to defeat the Russians, but maybe you'll get a stalemate. Now, the question you have to ask yourself, this is really the key question, is what are the Russians going to do? Right? Uh, it seems to me that a lot of people in the West think that uh, if the Ukrainians provide enough resistance, the Russians will roll over and play dead. Uh, or maybe Vladimir Putin will throw his hands up, he'll surrender, he'll say, this was all a bad idea, uh, I regret doing it. Uh, or maybe there'll be a coup in Moscow, he'll be overthrown, and they'll bring in leaders who will work out a deal with us, and Ukraine will live happily ever after, we will live happily ever after, and the Russians will be chastened. I've spent my entire adult life studying great power politics, I know a lot about great power politics. This is not the way the world works, and it is certainly not the way the Russians work. You want to understand, going back to what I said about the April 2008 decision, the Russians said at the time, this is an existential threat. This is an existential threat, right? So even before the current war, Ukraine, and Ukraine becoming part of NATO was viewed as an existential threat. Now you're talking about a situation where you defeat the Russians in Ukraine. This is a much worse outcome for the Russians than what happened in April 2008. And a much Have you ever backed someone into a corner in real life? I've known people who are just perfectly nice, perfectly polite, and then either advertently or inadvertently, I backed them into a corner and they turned into absolute tigers. Right? They, they, they came out you know, spitting and kicking and, and flailing, right? You back someone into a corner, that's a very dangerous thing. And to back Russia, a nuclear power into a corner, very, very dangerous. Much worse outcome that would happen in February, 2014. And the Russians are not gonna roll over and play dead. In fact, what the Russians are gonna do is they're gonna crush the Ukrainians. They're gonna bring out the big guns. They're gonna turn places like Kiev and other cities in Ukraine into rubble. They're gonna do Fallujahs. They're gonna do Mosul's. And you don't hear this this perspective on any of the mainstream media. I mean, yeah, the New Yorker ran an interview with him, but this guy is not being interviewed on Fox or CNN or any of the networks. They're going to do Grozny's. You know what happened in World War II when the United States was faced with the possibility of having to invade the Japanese home islands in early 1945. The idea of invading the Japanese. Okay, let's uh, welcome Elliot Blatt onto the show. Elliot, what's going on, bro? Elliot, speak, man. Speak. 
home islands after what happened at Iwo Jima and then later what happened in Okinawa really spooked us. So you know what we did? We decided to burn Japanese cities to the ground starting Hell on March 10th, 1945. Going? We killed more people the first night we firebombed Tokyo than we killed at either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And we were systematically burning Japanese Elliot cities Blatt, to the ground. Why? Because we did well, not things, want well, to things. invade. I stand with Ukraine, Elliot. How about you? What's my take on Ukraine? No, I said I stand with Ukraine. Oh, yes, too. I'm draped in... Uh, I have like this uh, bathrobe. It's like half light blue and half yellow. And I do these exercises to sort of relieve the tension in my back. So I go over to the couch and I sort of do this motion that sort of looks like I'm pumping the couch. And that's the way I'm supporting <laughs> you. That's beautiful. Is it working? Is it that, working? That's, yes, I, I think you're making a, a spiritual difference in the universe. Yes, I feel I am. So, uh, sorry, you know, I'm not going to give you any sort of Mearsham or tier, uh, geopolitical analysis. No. Yeah, no so, <laughs> should I hang up now or, uh, <laughs> do, do you use an electric shaver or a, a blade, Elliot? I use a blade, Luke. Only men use blades. How about, what did you think about me getting this whole thing of uh, chocolate nut harvest just for $3.70? It's like 10 meals there. So uh, these are like liquid meals? This is trail mix, and it's, oh. and it's kosher. Not chocolate mix with oh. peanuts, chocolate, raisins, almonds, and cashews. So it's like 10 meals for $3.70. Luke, you eat like a teenager. That's true. Not but but that these these nuts and chalkies they fueled this fantastic stream that I'm providing right now. That's the type of stuff you take hiking, Luke. You don't eat it. In the, um... Did I lose you? No, I'm. Oh, I'm okay, yeah. No, that's, no. That's, when you thought you lost me and you just saw two, uh, you know, two feet in the sand, I, I, that was I'm trying, me carrying I'm trying you. To, I'm trying to look at the YouTube output. And there's a little bit of delay, so therefore I thought there was a delay. I'm sorry. That was me carrying you in your darkest times. That's me trying. You got no, a beautiful not. voice, bro. No oh, moment. thanks, man. Thanks. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I was thinking about um, the idealism we were talking about earlier. Oh, yeah, human rights and utopia. Human rights and idealism. Yeah, I really remember that day when I sort of got hit with all of that. You know, like I'd grown up in this sort of really small town, Mayberry type town, and, you know, never where was heard a discouraging word. And, you know, and then I get to the big bad city, I get to San Francisco, and there's all this street activism going on, right? And I learned about all these terrible things happening in Central America. It was my duty to do something about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I went through this huge depression. And then all these people were telling me this were socialists, you know, and that's when I sort of got seduced into thinking, you know, solo, you know, socialism was, wasn't as bad as people said, you know, so I really got sucked into that. And these people really prey on the, the idealism of children. And this is what sort of keeps it going or children are, I should say, young adults, you know, that, that sort of late adolescence, early adulthood. It's sort of the time of peak adolescent, adolescent uh, idealism. 
And these people prey on that and that's where they get their converts and that's where they get, uh, you know, woke tarts. This is the uh, seedbed of woke tarts. And so, so I thought it was an interesting observation for me to put together. That. Right, but what do you do with your own utopian impulses? Do you just like, you know, let them off for five minutes in the evening right before you go to bed? Or do you just like take them out on weekends? Like, what do you do with your utopian impulses and where do you put them? I don't think I have them anymore, Luke, as sad as that may sound. Um, wow, you don't have any utopian impulses. No. Maybe I mean, you're just not in touch with them. Have you explored well, I just, yourself I just to see if you might have folly. some? You know, that, that, that's think, that type of thinking is folly, and I've, I think I've outgrown them. Maybe you're just not in touch with your impulses. Maybe, maybe you need a safe space to explore them. Um, have you ever been uh, to a bathhouse? Have you ever been to a um, Gladiator movie? <laughs> yeah, I saw Gladiator many times. Love that movie. No, no. <laughs> it's a line from Airplane. Here, so yeah. Oh, sorry. Do you remember that sign from... Uh, do you remember? Did you see Airplane? Yes. So remember when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is in the, he's in the in the flight deck. Yes. And then he, the kid comes up, and then the captain starts asking the little kid a bunch of uh, questions. Yes. About a homosexual innuendo. <laughs> yes. Place, which I think is the funniest brand of humor. The funniest like sub. Um, the funniest style of human is like the is like the homosexual double entendre. Yeah, you know, like it's, I made the other day, Luke. Which it's because we're so anxious, and and because we've constructed this this heterosexuality, and 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 yet there's there's always this homosexuality lurking in the background that we're trying to deny, and so anything that that uh, makes jokes to relieve the tension that we feel about this, you know, great cavern of homosexual, homosexual possibilities that, you know, lay out there that uh, we, we always love. Yeah, yeah. It, it's so, yeah, the subject is so intrinsically, like, off-putting and destabilizing to the male psyche that yeah. any, any joke that touches on that yeah. is just bound to get a laugh, you know? Yeah, it's like when a man's <laughs> pants fall down in a movie. Exactly. Or he gets, yeah, he gets clubbed in the nuts. <laughs> but seriously, I, I'm trying to think, I got, I got utopian impulses that uh, I guess I explored when I was researching the pornography industry. And well, what do you mean by utopian impulses? What do you, what do you actually mean when you say utopia? Just so we well, just it. like this wonderful, wonderful world out there. I mean, don't you yeah. ever like look at other people and sometimes think, oh, they must have like a great life. Don't, don't you ever see someone who's like got a hot wife? and a good job and they they seem happy all the time that you ever think oh man i want some of that well that's not utopian that's just envy though right oh yeah i guess so. well but, but utopian is like well all you know the john lennon will all uh, imagine there are no no borders or no heaven above us only sky that's utopianism I went back to Sydney for two months and I saw like three homeless people in my whole time in Sydney and there was virtually no crime. So compared to LA, Sydney seemed very utopian. Hmm. 
so uh so you're going to remain american huh? in in the in the land of the free huh? uh probably i mean but there was a great article in usa today this week about how some you know major catastrophe is going it's likely to hit the west coast in the next 30 years like we're due for some massive massive earthquakes and so if something like that hits and and i survive i just then then i'd probably go to sydney for a while but here i'll tell you what i did some prepping mm-hmm. this uh, this week and i bought oh you got some uh, some chocolate mix yeah i bought 10 chocolate mixes and did I you leave also... the house or did you get it by amazon uh, by amazon of course oh jesus so sad but i also bought this like thing that you can crank for um power like uh here it is uh fos power 2000 emergency weather radio portable power bank with solar charging hand crank and battery operated so it's for 30 dollars. so i could power my phone just by cranking it or uh connecting it to solar power so when the when the big one hits and electricity goes out i'm mm-hmm. i'm prepared so i did some prepping uh, what about you are you prepped for the big one um uh no but i should be well i did some research and apparently i'm on uh bedrock so i'm really not at risk but you could what do you mean you could still lose your electricity you could still be without running water that's true well then i'll just jump in the ocean because i'm not afraid of cold water well you can't drink the ocean and how are you going to power your phone I think you need a portable well, uh, power bank point, with no solar charging. So, at that point, if I don't have a phone, no one's going to have a phone. Who am I going to call? Me? Most of the world will still have phones. You can at least text people. Oh, okay. Hello, SOS. Come get me. What, what preparation have you done for the big one, bro? The big uh, one's coming, whether you like it or not. You can deny it, but it's coming. Uh, bro. Well, yeah, it could be a hundred years. I don't like it. To could live like be, that. yeah, right. Um, I'm just going to, um, you know, what it is? I have this faith that um, I'll get a tip. <laughs> so, do you have five gallons of water set aside? Uh, <clears throat> I have about two gallons of water set aside. Okay, and do you have uh, some trail mix? No, I have a lot of rice, though. How are you going to cook the rice? Good point, Luke. You're really exposing the weaknesses of my plan. Um, oh, boy. So, well, you know what? I have some charcoal briquettes. So I could go to the beach, and I could light a fire, and then I could make some rice at the beach, I guess. Then I have a few cans of beans, so I could, uh... Luke, I'm totally unprepared, totally unprepared. Maybe it's time to start getting prepared, bro. <laughs> so is this just, an, I think this is just an expression of your sort of general level of anxiety that you always have. What, to, to be prepared for a disaster in which there's a significant chance it'll happen and, and you're turning it into some kind of uh, uh, psychological weakness on my part, bro? Well, let's put it this way. Everybody that I know that's into prepping, they have a few personality ticks, you know? Okay. And I, I don't know. I just have an association with, you know, it's not, I don't want to like diss anybody, but 
you know, they're a bunch like, of losers. They're the same people that are prone to uh, conspiracy, conspiracy theories. Yeah, it's the same cohort. You know what I mean? But these people who have been losers all their life, in a moment of emergency, they will become the winners. And they'll have their choice of women. And they will be proven right, have been proven right. And they will uh, have been proven right, bro. <laughs> I don't know. Like you could be part of the solution. Like a disaster <laughs> hits and you could be out there with your first aid kit and, and your knowledge. You could be sewing up wounds. You could be setting legs. You could be, you could be the solution or you could be part of the problem. Uh, I guess I'm just not a good person. Like. <laughs> but uh, uh, maybe maybe back to utopia. So, I mean, as, as a religious person, there's a utopian impulse that is fulfilled through uh, believing that the Messiah will come or if you're a Christian, believing that, that Jesus will come. Or that there's a much better world out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think utopian needs get met that way. And then did you ever have a, a communist phase? I was Yeah, I, was... I had I had like a pretty heavy communist phase for like a year, year and a half, two, maybe even two years. Well, it was really intense for like a year. And then it took me, uh, took me like maybe sort of like leaving a cult. It took me maybe another year, year and a half to sort of completely deprogram myself. There's definitely a cultic aspect to it, right? Yeah. Um, similar to Scientology. I mean, I've been I caught a few Scientology uh, podcasts. Like Louis Louis Theroux. Did yes. you see the Louis, Louis Theroux? Um, I saw him interviewed by Rogan, so I listened to that um, conversation. And so that got me onto this Scientology jag, which comes like every two years. I think about that for a couple of days, and then I forget about it. But um, uh, the cultic mind, you know, the cult, the, the cult mind is def- there's there's definitely a strong strand of utopianism in it, right? Yeah, I mean, there's got to be some kind of payoff, right? Yeah, but uh, but but there's a the the, tena- the ferocity uh, that the, the the fervor that people bring to being in a cult and their cult beliefs, you know, is it's all bound up with fixing the world, saving the world, making the world a better place, all this kind of thing. Right? Yep. And um, so, and th- there is a certain loss of self in that. You know what I mean? Yes. And you, you get to slough off your miserable life and dissolve yourself in humanity. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that's why it, ta- it that's why it took me so long to leave, you know, communism. Uh, even though when it was just painfully, I knew it was absurd. You know, I felt like this moral uh, duty to sort of keep the faith, and I think um, otherwise the whole world would go up in flames. You know, and I would be at fault. And uh, when were you a communist? Uh, right around the first girl go for. So, um, what was that? How, how old were you? I was 19. 19. Yeah. So kind of 1920-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and so the Marxists, they basically seize on any sort of, any sort of, um, 
issue or crisis, right? They, they're like crisis magnets. And whatever the crisis is, Marxism is the solution. Right. right? It's like a religion. Like it's yeah. like Adventism. When I was raised in that, every, every crisis was interpreted by scripture. Right. And then like there's this radio show up here I used to listen to like years ago uh, just to sort of hate listen to it. And uh, this woman, I forgot her name, but she's always using the word crisis. What about the homelessness crisis? What about the environment crisis? Like crisis is like their, their sort of go-to word. And when you hear the word crisis, your next thought is, well, something should be done, right? There's a crisis, right. something should be done. Ukraine's been invited, something should be done. The Ukrainian crisis, 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 right? And uh, once people believe in crisis, they don't like to hear that there is no crisis or what's perceived as a crisis is not a crisis there's something else that keeps them bound to the notion because it does, you know, like the term immortality project, mm -hmm. some philosopher, I who it was, but he, he called all these obsessions, uh, immortality projects. So if you're a human rights campaigner, the way to become immortal is to become a really zealous human rights campaigner. And this yeah. gives you this sense of both loss of self, but also, Make, it, lets, it allows you to think, not think about death, you know, it allows you to transcend yourself. Yeah, because you're, you're part of something eternal and redemptive. Mm -hmm. So. And you haven't had much need for this over the past, what, uh, 28 years? Um, no, because so once I sort of got clean, I went clear, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> I, I developed like this toxic allergy, this like this reflexive allergy to any of that type of thinking. That's maybe why I'm here, Luke. That's maybe why I'm listening to the Luke Ford show. Uh, and, and you haven't been seriously religious either, have you? Oh, not in sort of the way that you're religious, no. So you, uh, I wouldn't say. But I'm not irreligious or a-religious either. What do you think about eating bugs? That they can be a good source of protein and they can be quite tasteful if they're prepared properly. <laughs> you you bring me back the coast of KMG here. Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine KMG having to eat a bug? I was at yoga and uh, yoga is wonderful because there are usually about three times as many women as guys. And I started talking to this attractive Jewish woman and I, I find out more and more about her, and it turns out her life is devoted to teaching people how to eat bugs and how to prepare bugs and how to cook bugs. Uh, and so I was impaled is... on the horns of a dilemma because she was slim, mm -hmm. and she was attractive, mm -hmm. and she was Jewish and tikkun alum. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I was kind of grossed out by the bug thing. Yeah. And and so I didn't. I didn't. I mean. I thought I would, but I didn't. Really? You, you got gun shy. You got bug shy. I got bug shy, bro. <laughs> I mean, she was like a seven and I was like 43, 44 at the time. So, you know, I was fading, mm -hmm. you know, and, and when you get older, like, of course, you're only going to get, you know, a young, attractive woman who's mentally ill. Right. And it's just, you know, how many degrees of mental illness can you handle? Right. And I tried, I tried to overcome my bug phobia. Mm -hmm. but I couldn't like mm -hmm. how hot would a woman in her 
late 20s have to be for you to uh to, to, to romance her if she was her life was primarily devoted to preparing and cooking bugs we're talking like the upper nines bro wow <laughs> like i was impaled on a seven <laughs> i'm really like i have you know i have like this lots of things i'm like easily disgusted you know I, I i can't many things disgust me and so oh, oh yeah um, i um i can't even fathom things like that so i i was writing for this website uh a, a porn website i was writing the news and, oh porn website no kidding yeah this is this is uh this is like 18 years ago and one of my my co-workers was this attractive and busty young model and she had a, she had a degree in english so we we had lots to talk about you know we both loved english literature and so once i i started uh, working with her she she invited me out for dinner and then she was inviting me back to her place to jump in the jacuzzi and so i thought wow i'm going to get lucky and then we we meet for dinner and and she has like a bacon salad uh -oh. and no matter how attractive she was that uh -oh. just ended up for me i mean I, I went through with the dinner and i got in the jacuzzi but i did not lay a hand on her and because you don't dig on swine bro it, it, i was just i was just repulsed yeah. it, it wasn't even a choice <laughs> and uh in uh in the Herman Wook 1950s novel Marjorie Morningstar. It's only after the female protagonist eats eats treif, eats non-kosher food for the first time that she then loses her virginity. But but for me, the prospect of that treif, that 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 pig on the plate, and I I couldn't, I just couldn't. So I I think I have a disgust reflex too. Yeah, but but yeah, but yours, you know, yours is sort of ideologically driven or religiously driven. It wasn't rational. Like blood. When like I see I blood. I, I just I, couldn't. I'm sorry? Like when I see blood in real life, mm -hmm. I, I can't, I freak out. Like I, I just. Uh, That's not a turn on for you. It's not a turn on, bro. It's like, uh, like horror movies. I can never watch horror movies because of the blood and gore. It just uh, never worked for me, my dude. I remember there was this woman I was quite interested in and we were doing calculus together. Yeah. And she knew the answers, mm -hmm. and I didn't. And I was learning from her, and it just completely destroyed my my yearning for her. I was like so upset and humiliated that she knew the answers and I didn't that I no longer felt like a man. So really, women that do math are uh, it. It wasn't a rational decision. I was just like. It just hit me like this has happened. Like a woman will hit on me, mm -hmm. and if I'm not in the right space to handle it, I just run away. And like I, I, I may think you know I'm a strong, confident person, you know, respect the cock, but yeah, but uh, I'll, suddenly I'll get insecure because she knows more math than me, or she's eaten pig, or you know something else that that just gives me the the, the willies. Oh, right, let me tell you this, Luke. So. Um... So you take this thing, like you have these these dietary, um, you know, restrictions. And so I was a vegetarian for a while, you know, 
And a big part of my self-esteem came from the fact that I was a vegetarian and other people weren't, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, um, whenever, when the chips were down, you know, I could always console myself by knowing that I was a vegetarian and other people weren't. It was wow. a feeling good about myself. Wow, during which, which years of your life? This was the same years of the communist years. Okay. So, um, uh, so that these types of um, observances do that. They have this, you know, it's very, it's very well-known phenomenon. You know, vegetarians are insufferable, or new, or recently converted vegetarians are insufferable. Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, so I got that going for me. <laughs> so, yeah, so they all ties together. It all ties together. So do you find that, did I lose you? No, I'm uh, okay. with you. Do you I'm find that you. that your uh, your observance of, of Jewish dietary law even subtly makes you feel uh, you know better than other people? Uh, I'm not sure, but it certainly it certainly affects me. I mean, it certainly certainly shapes me. I mean, it, because I only eat in, in kosher restaurants or to the extent that I've only eaten in kosher restaurants, that reduces my intercourse with non-Jews. That if you, you know, won't eat with non-Jews, you're less likely to sleep with them. Uh, mm. I don't drink alcohol, but laws about kosher oh. wine make it less likely that you'll get drunk with a non-Jew. Therefore, you'll be less likely to sleep with one. And Look, I, I, go I've got a meeting I got to get ready for. I, I didn't realize. Okay. The time of just flew by, Luke. It was okay, so bro. Drove by. I got to drop. Blessings. All right. Thanks. All right. Peace. Bye. Okay. Blessings to Elliot and Elliot. When you walk through a storm, bro, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. Elliot, at the end of a storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. The Japanese main islands. When a great power feels threatened, when the Russians are going to pull out all stops in Ukraine to make sure that they win. And then there's the nuclear dimension to this. The Russians have already put their nuclear weapons on high alert. This is a really significant development because what they were doing was sending us a very powerful signal as to how seriously they take this crisis and what's going on. So again, if we start winning and the Russians start losing, you want to understand that what we're talking about doing here is backing a nuclear armed great power that sees what's happening as an existential threat into a corner. This is really dangerous. Go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't think that what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis was as threatening to us as this situation is to the Russians. But if you go back and look at how American decision makers thought at the time, they were scared stiff. They thought that Soviet missiles in Cuba was an existential threat and they were willing, many of Kennedy's advisors, to use our nuclear arsenal against the Soviet Union. That's how serious great powers get when they think they face existential threats. So in my opinion, we are in a very dangerous situation. I think the likelihood of nuclear war is very small, but the likelihood doesn't have to be high for me to be really scared because of the consequences associated with nuclear use. So we better be extremely careful here regarding what we do in terms of pushing the Russians into the corner. But again, I'm not sure that's gonna happen because I think what's gonna happen here is that in a competition between us and the Russians, the Russians will win. Now you're saying to yourself, why is he saying that? I think that if you, uh, think about this. 
you want to think about who has the greater resolve, right? Who, who really cares more about this situation, the Russians or the Americans? The Americans do not care that much about Ukraine. The Americans have made it clear they are not even willing to fight and die for Ukraine. So it's not that important to us. For the Russians, they have made it clear it's an existential threat. So the balance of resolve, I believe, favors them. So as we walk up the escalation ladder moving forward, my guess, and it's just my guess, is that the Russians will prevail, not the Americans, and the Russians will prevail because the balance of resolve favors them. Now, the question is, who loses this war? Uh, I think it doesn't matter much to the United States if we lose in the sense that the Russians prevail in Ukraine. I think the real losers in this war are the Ukrainians. And I think what's happened here is we have led the Ukrainians down the primrose path. We have pushed very hard to encourage the Ukrainians to want to become part of NATO. We have pushed very hard to make them part of NATO. We have pushed very hard to make them a Western bulwark on Russia's borders, despite the fact the Russians made it clear that this was unacceptable to them. We, in effect, and here I'm talking about the West, we took a stick and we poked a bear in the eye. And as you all know, if you take a stick and you poke a bear in the eye, that bear is probably not going to smile and laugh at what you're doing. That bear is probably going to fight back. And that's exactly what's happening here. And that bear is going to tear apart Ukraine. That bear is in the process of tearing apart Ukraine. And again, we go back to where we started. Who bears responsibility for this? Do the Russians bear responsibility for this? I don't think so. There's no question the Russians are doing the dirty work. I don't want to make light of that fact. But the question is, what caused the Russians to do this? And in my opinion, the answer is very simple. The United States of America. Thank you. Thank you, John J. Mearsheimer. Now, what will Russia do about our undersea cables, right? They could just cut them, devastate the internet, the world. Just a quick word from our sponsor. Whoa. Oh, 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 Whoa. Oh, right. Whoa. I don't need that. Man, oh man, just try to get, uh, just trying to play, play an article on Newsweek and they're, they're dropping, dropping a bloody, Ad on me. Okay, so what else have I been reading? Just uh, read a terrific 2010 book, Uncle Sam Wants You, World War One and the Making of the Modern American Citizen. One thing we know is that the word obligation was very much on their minds during World War One, when Americans discussed the state, they used terms such as duty. Okay. world's communications networks, the head of Britain's armed forces has warned. Admiral Sir Tony Radock in 56 told the Times of London about his fears over the phenomenal increase in Russian submarine and underwater activity over the last two decades, which he warned was more than about submarines. He said Russia's underwater program intended to put at risk and potentially exploit the undersea cables that provide the world's real information system. That is where predominantly all the world's information and traffic travels, he told the paper. Russia has grown the capability to put at threat those undersea cables and potentially exploit those undersea cables. When asked if an attempt by Russia to cut the cables would be an act of war, he replied, potentially, yes. Modern underwater lines carry thousands of miles of optical fiber cables to carry digital data, including internet services. In his first interview since since taking over the role, Radokin, a former head of the Royal Navy, was echoing a warning made in 2017 by his predecessor, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stuart Peach, who earlier warned seabed communication cables were vulnerable to Russian military assets. British ships have been protecting underwater cables from Russian submarines in areas like the North Atlantic. A collision between a British Type 23 frigate, HMS Northumberland, and a Russian submarine in 2020 was reported this week, sparking speculation about the extent of Russian cable mapping activity. 
the collision was filmed in newly released footage by a documentary crew. Radokin also pointed to Russia's ever-growing hypersonic and long-range missile capability. In December, Russia test-fired about 10 new Zhurkhan hypersonic cruise missiles from a frigate and two more from a submarine, Russian state agencies reported. This week, North Korea claimed to have successfully tested a hypersonic missile while China has also tested a number of hypersonic missiles. Radokin said that the UK lagged behind other countries in missile capability telling the paper, we haven't got them, and we must have. His comments come amid escalating tensions between Russia and NATO of which the UK is a member. The UK has joined the US in sounding the... Okay, so Russia could end, end life as we know it if they decide to cut undersea cables. Back to play a little bit more here from John Mearsheimer. Hi, it's Ron Maxwell here. Can you hear me? Money on that. But I would note that even if the Russians lose, in the process, they will destroy Ukraine. Uh, and from Ukraine's point of view, that's not a good thing. This is why my view is that Ukraine should have long ago divorced itself from the United States and worked out a modus vivendi with Russia. Uh, my view is if you're a reasonably small power in the international system and you live next door to a gorilla, you have to go to great lengths to accommodate that gorilla. And the last thing you want to do is poke that gorilla in the eye because the gorilla will do great damage to you and it probably will never forget. I don't know if you're old enough to remember uh, when Fidel Castro came to power in 1959, but shortly thereafter, we put sanctions on Fidel Castro and on Cuba. And those sanctions are basically still on Cuba. We've never gotten over the fact that Cuba behaved in ways that we considered to be unacceptable. And I think you have a similar situation here. And my view is, yes, the Ukrainians have agency, but if they were smart, they'd divorce themselves from the United States and uh, try to work out a modus vivendi with Russia. I guess I'm... I'm uh, it's just whatever uh, Putin wishes uh, to the attitude of Taiwan towards being absorbed into mainland China, which also uh, has lawlessness and everything is dictated by President Xi. Are those situations comparable or not, you think? Uh, I, I'm not in a position to judge. I know so little about Taiwan, uh, you know, aside from reading The Economist type thing. So I'm really not in a position to judge. But I would have guessed from what little I do know that, uh, yeah, what's happened in Hong Kong is deeply, deeply worrying to Taiwan and not the least bit surprising to them. So yes, they have, they're, in, they're in a similar situation of this larger entity has a, a political and legal culture that we do not want for ourselves. I'll take the liberty now, since I'm uh, in the, the chair as a ersatz for John Henry. I wanted to raise with, uh, with uh, John Mearsheimer, you ma made some comparisons to uh, Russia's reaction, Ukraine and the US and Cuba, Fidel Castro, um, and uh, how we uh, viewed uh, Cuba and Castro as a threat to our our security interest and existential threat. And response, you know, we had the Bay of Pigs, the attempted assassinations of Castro that about Operation Mongoose. Uh, we even had plans after the failed um, Bay of Pigs to invade. Um, uh, do you think those um, responses of the United States were uh, morally or legally um, legitimate um, responses uh, that, uh, that we made, you know, that were an example that uh, other countries should and can follow, or are they something that ought not to be followed? This is a great question. And of course, it follows on one of your three initial points as well as Adam Dixon's comments, which have to do with the subject of rights and, and what's morally or legally uh, permissible in the international system. I think that in international politics, states usually pay attention to international law and they pay attention to moral precepts as long as they're in their strategic interest. But if there's a conflict between international law and a country's strategic interests, the country will always privilege its strategic interests and international law and human rights will be pushed off the table. This is why I think it's not very helpful to talk about rights. Uh, when you talk about whether Russia has the right to have a buffer state 
or Ukraine has the right to have its own foreign policy. These are concepts that, in my opinion, get you into all sorts of trouble. In the international system, might makes right. And the United States would never tolerate a situation where Canada or Mexico invited, in a legal way, China to bring military forces into Toronto or Mexico City. We have a Monroe Doctrine, which is in our strategic interest. And our Monroe Doctrine says, no distant great power is allowed to put military forces in the Western Hemisphere, period, end of story. What the Russians are doing here is they're basically articulating their own version of the Monroe Doctrine. They're saying you cannot turn Ukraine into a Western bastion on our border. It has nothing to do with rights, right? It doesn't matter whether Ukraine has the right to do this or that. We're saying they can't do it. Just like we're saying Cuba can't inv invite the Soviets to bring military forces into the Western Hemisphere. So for me, when you talk about great power politics, rights in the final analysis just don't matter. Might makes right. And the United States is a mighty powerful country. It's a mighty powerful country on purpose. And it does whatever it thinks is in its strategic interest. And if the rights say that's okay to do, good. But if the rights are at odds with what's in our strategic interest, we do what's in our strategic interest. Right, so we can't get confused between the things that a nation state says and what it actually does. So the United States has attended in foreign policy to act in its strategic interest, but has often cloaked that in the language of rights. But let me, let me offer this, uh, John, uh, the Declaration of Independence. Um, now, maybe we departed from it, but it certainly spoke in terms of rights. You know, men and women, they're, they're born with unalienable rights. And they also articulate a right and a duty to rise up and throw off a tyrannical government. Now, maybe the Declaration of Independence is quaint, but actually it's what gave birth to this nation you know, that we're residing in right now. Uh, it may well be that as a descriptive matter, uh, we're still living with uh, Thucydides, the strong do what they can, the weak suffer what they must. Uh, and it may well be that uh, as a practical matter, maybe things don't change, but I don't think we should necessarily view as irrelevant, as you're saying, assigning responsibility. Maybe there's imperi delicto. Uh, and responsibility means making a moral judgment, even if the moral judgment has no immediate practical significance. Don't you think the Declaration of Independence is worth uh, admiring and aspiring towards? I think the Declaration of Independence is of enormous importance. I thank my lucky stars I was born in a liberal democracy, right? And I, I think, like you, regret the fact that liberal democracy is, at, is under threat at home. But my view, and I'm probably different than you, Bruce, in this regard, is that international politics is a different domain than domestic politics. And in international politics, the Thucydides uh, way of thinking about the world where might makes right is what applies. I'm not in favor of going around and beating up on other states, and I'm not in favor of wanton violence and so forth and so on. And I do think that what is happening in Ukraine is absolutely horrible. It makes me sick to my stomach. But on the other hand, I think it's very important to understand basic realist logic and the reason it's important to understand realist logic is because, at least in this case, that's what informs Putin. Putin is thinking like Thucydides, and Americans have a terribly difficult time putting themselves in Putin's shoes. And this is because Americans tend to think in terms of rights and in terms of American exceptionalism and all these other ideas that I think get us into trouble. I think, you know, going back to the film clip that Ray put up there where Putin uh, talked about in that New York Times op-ed, the trouble America causes by thinking of itself as an exceptional nation is correct. I just don't want to think that way in IR, and I don't want to think about rights when it comes to international relations. Um, Ray, did you want to add your thoughts? Uh, Thank yeah. you for the question. Uh, why don't we, just to organize it, John, why don't you respond first, and then Ray, you chip in, and then we're going to call it to a close. Yeah, Th those are two great questions, and uh, I think that the question that is really on the table here is whether or not with sanctions, and the costs of war, just the cost of losing people and fighting in Ukraine, that coupled with economic sanctions can uh, inflict enough punishment on the Russian people and the oligarchs that they rise up against Putin, right? This is, this is the question. 
And I think there are two reasons that's not going to happen. I'm not saying I'm right, you're wrong, but I, I think that what the scenario that you two described will not prove to be correct. And let me tell you why. The first is nationalism. States are able to sustain huge amounts of punishment and the population does not rise up against the ruler. You want to think about what we did to Japan in World War II. You want to think about what we did to Germany. You want to think about the literature on sanctions, economic sanctions. Look at Iran. It's amazing what we've done to Iran. Look at Cuba. There have been sanctions on Cuba forever, right? And these countries don't throw up their hands. So the first point I would make to you is nationalism is a very powerful force. And I think that the Russian people will rally around Putin. Second point I would make to you is, as a result of this, uh, uh, this talk that I gave that's ricocheting all over the internet, plus the New Yorker piece, I get, I get like a thousand emails every day. I can't even open up all the emails I get. But I've gotten a number of emails from Russians. These are educated people uh, who are not hostile to me in any way. And I read those emails to say that you want to understand that you Americans are threatening Mother Russia. And what's going on here is not simply a case of Putin misbehaving and us liking the Americans. And what's going to happen here is we're going to overthrow Putin. The emails I'm getting, and this is not a scientific sample, but it is consistent with my general point about nationalism, is that the more we push against the Russians in Ukraine and the more we threaten the regime, the more that people will rally around Putin. Now, again, I could be proved wrong on that, but my bet is that he'll be able to withstand the sanctions. And by the way, this gets to Ray's point. Ray's point is the Chinese are going to help him. We know the Indians are going to help him. We've heard that the Mexicans are going to help him. So it's not clear that we'll be able to punish him that much over the long term. But then again, even if we do punish him, do you think that's going to bring the Russian people to their knees or Putin to his knees? I wouldn't bet a lot of money on that. Okay, this is a CNN report from six years ago. Flexing his military might inside a Russian still. Navy submersible. But tonight, some are questioning if Putin is now doing more than just putting on a show under the sea. A new report from the New York Times cites more than a dozen unnamed U.S. officials raising concerns Russian submarines and spy ships are aggressively patrolling near important undersea cables. Massive fiber optic lines spanning from continent to continent, carrying the bulk of the world's internet communications. Their goals are to humiliate the United States and show that it can't defend itself, and to project naval power into the Atlantic, thus sh showing the United States and Europe, we're here, you have to deal with us and take us seriously, and we, we can propose a threat to your most vital interests. According to the Times, officials are concerned that if a larger conflict between Russia and the West broke out, a Russian ship could locate an internet cable on the sea floor, lower a submersible down to it, and either attach a wiretap to eavesdrop on it, or worse, sever the cable, cutting off a crucial data pipeline. They're extremely vital. They're, they're the core of our communications infrastructure. So we hear a lot of talk about the cloud, for example, uh, and we think of it as something nebulous, something in the sky. Well, the cloud is really uh, under the ocean. Jonathan Yembo works with a company which monitors telecom infrastructure. He says there are hundreds of these cables stretching across the ocean floors. Enough, he says, to span the globe at the equator 15 times. Yembo says if multiple undersea cables were cut at once, it could harm American business and government interests and could have even more catastrophic effects on Europe. Tonight, the Pentagon won't confirm the concerns raised in the New York Times. One U.S. official says while the Russians could tamper with the cables, the U.S. hasn't seen a significant increase in Russian activity where the cables are located. There's also been no evidence of any actual cable cutting. But newspaper reports say the Russian ship, the Yantar, which is equipped with submersibles capable of cutting undersea cables, has been spotted cruising in the Atlantic on its way to Cuba, not far from where at least one cable is located.
All right, so this is a story from six years ago, but uh, particularly relevant in a time of great conflict. You can't just impose sanctions on Russia and think that Russia is not going to get their revenge. All right, so the latest book I've been reading was uh, the book on El Chapo, terrific book on El Chapo that uh, just came out last year, 2020. Very exciting read. Just uh, went through it in a little over two hours. And before that, I read Uncle Sam Wants You, World War One, and the Making of the Modern American Citizen. So we hear a lot more about rights these days than obligations. But it used to be, prior to the 1920s, you heard far more about obligations than about rights. So historian writes in 2010, one thing we know is that the word obligation back in World War One was very much on their minds during World War One. When Americans discuss their relationship to the state, they use terms such as duty, sacrifice, and obligation. You don't hear those terms very much anymore. I think Michael Medved talked about how liberals have an ethos of follow your bliss, and conservatives have an ethos of do your duty. Language was everywhere in congressional debates about the war on the posters of military recruiters during the conflict, even in the parades that marked the war's end. Political obligations energized mobilized and divided Americans during World War I. So looking at the history of a liberal society like the United States, it might seem that Americans have never really had to think about their political obligations, let alone act on them. In the later wars of the 20th, 20th and 21st centuries, liberal individualism, an economy of consumption, nationalized culture, legally protected civil liberties, and an expanded federal state all played more prominent roles in public life, but even so throughout American history, a citizenship of obligation has always coexisted with one of rights. So how much of a citizenship of obligation do we have anymore? Wow, Rodney Martin, thank you so much. Luke, what will your kinsmen down under do? They have their hands full with China putting the squeeze on them. I think uh, the, the Australians are pretty well situated. So they are strongly aligned with the United States and Japan. I think uh, China is very much a declining power. They're undergoing the most drastic uh, demographic uh, decline that uh, we've ever measured. So I, I didn't think the, you know, that uh, China will even exist in its current form in, in 10 years. So uh, Australia is deeply embedded with various nations such as Japan and India who are concerned about the rise of China. I think Australia is going to do well. Now, Australia has had some problems with Chinese corrupting Australian institutions Chinese corrupting Australian politicians and people in power. So it's not a black and white matter. But uh, three of the, two of the three major sea lanes on the way to China uh, go past Australia. So Australia is vitally important to China. And the Australian economic boom of the past 20 years has been largely on the basis of, of China buying so many of our raw materials. But uh, now with this new deal with AUKUS, which is Australia, United States, Japan, and India. Uh, Australia is not only getting nuclear submarines, they're also developing uh, missile technology. And so Australia could completely disrupt, could uh, completely disrupt uh, China's supply chain. And China has to import all its oil, all its energy. All right. China is completely dependent on importing petroleum. And Australia and India and Japan and the United States and Singapore and Indonesia, any of those countries could put two destroyers out into the Indian Ocean 
and the, the Pacific Ocean and destroy China's ability to import energy and China would just starve. So China's incredibly vulnerable. And Rodney Martin, thank you so much. Uh, $10 super chat, does Australia buy Russian oil? Uh, if they do, it's very minor. So Australia produces oil. So Australia produces the commodities and natural resources. So generally speaking, when America has been hurt by high commodity prices, the Australian economy has boomed. So uh, Australia may not be 100% energy self-sufficient, but uh, it's pretty close to that. It also has so much sunshine down under that uh, solar power is important. Uh, Australia has you know, a lot of uh, natural gas. I think Australia produces more natural gas than any other nation on Earth. Have a look at the Sydney Morning Herald. Now, how are you guys dealing with the death of Shane Warne, right? The greatest spin bowler in, in all of history is, uh, is now dead, died of a heart attack at age 52 uh, on a vacation in Thailand. Suspected heart attack, he was just 52. So he retired back in 2007. So Putin's energy shock is becoming a world food crisis. Brace for rationing. Well, Australia doesn't have to worry about this. The United States doesn't have to worry about this. Europe should be okay. But uh, Africa and the Middle East and parts of Asia are going to be in trouble. So the world was facing a grain supply crunch even before Putin's invasion of Ukraine. United Nations food price index was already higher in real terms than at the height of the global hunger crisis a decade ago when you had the Arab Spring. You have a tight global market for grains, vegetable oil, and fertilizer. Probably one of the many reasons why Putin chose this moment to strike, calculating that the West would not try to squeeze him too hard. So the world faces a commodity black swan across the gamut of primary resources. So Australia's uh, coal production is just booming. Like the prices for, for coal are astronomical. The uh, wheat futures have shot up. So oil, gas, coal, and agricultural products are all spiraling higher together. This is great news for Australia. And uh, it's fine news for the United States. Not so good news for Europe. Uh, not so good news for Japan and China, Middle East and Africa. Uh, metal prices are rising. We have a systemic stagflation shock. We have an intractable problem for central bankers. So the world is running out of safety buffers. Tradable commodities are critically low. So we're going to have non-linear price increases. China is prepared. It's been stocking up. It holds 84% of the world's copper, 70% of its corn, 51% of its wheat. So record food commodity prices are an ordeal by fire for 45 of the poorest countries that rely heavily on food imports. So hundreds of millions of people are very likely to starve, places like Africa, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. So the whole production chain for food is under pressure from every side, the worst in, in our lifetimes. Energy and farm commodities are interlinked. Natural gas is a feedstock for fertilizer production in Europe. Russia and Belarus together account for a third of the world's exports of potash, which is vital for agriculture and fertilizer. Rocketing oil prices, right? Oil now 110 plus a, a barrel. So these are driving a switch to biodiesel in Southeast Asia, further tightening the global market for vegetable oils. Third of the world's exports of barley come from Russia and Ukraine. 29% of wheat, 20% of maize, 80% of sunflower oil. Usually this is shipped through the Black Sea. But uh, not going to do much shipping through there right now. 
Uh, insurance rates are prohibitive. Banks are refusing letters of credit, even though grains, fertilizers, and energy products are exempt from sanctions against Russia. So shippers everywhere are scrambling to find out what it means for a counterparty to be connected with Russia. Everyone is wary of the U.S. Treasury Sanctions Police, known as OFAC, O-F-A-C, U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control. So every transaction has to be screened to the finest detail. Russian and Ukrainian wheat is not being offered. Critical corn flows to the world are stymied. Ukraine farmers do not plant substantial quantities of corn next month. The supply chain will be very tight. Luke could be the next YouTube boxer. Putin underestimated the power of social media virtue signaling. Small farmers in Russia have just been shut out of the domestic credit market just before planting season. So loans in Russia are now at 27%. Chicago wheat futures have hit an all-time high. And uh, we also must contend with intense La Nina weather patterns and drought in Brazil and Argentina. So grain shortfalls are going to be pronounced. Primary commodities today are more expensive in real terms than any time over the past 20 years, much higher in Europe and Africa. So we are entering a raw material shock of early 1970s proportion. And how will Russia retaliate? Will they exploit their lockhold over the global supply chain for titanium, palladium, and neon, which are needed for the Western aerospace and semiconductor industry. Okay, so let's have a look. Uh, one of my favorite uh, channels these days is Geopop. With NATO now sending significantly more troops to their eastern flank, and Russians closing in on Ukraine's capital, what can we expect to see in the next few weeks? Let's bring in the author of The Absent Superpower, Peter Zion. All right, Peter, give us the next three weeks, your projections. Hey, Jesse. Well, first on the military side, there's the push to Kiev. There's the move from the eastern provinces to link up Crimea. And then the troops that are in Crimea are going to be moving west to take the capital, the economic capital of Odessa. Oh, wow. Another super chat from Rodney Martin. He says, if Putin freezes the 500,000 barrels of oil USA buys each day, how much do you think Amer the average low IQ American will tolerate paying higher gasoline prices? Biden won't restore pipelines and energy leases. So, yeah, some definite challenges for Joe Biden and our gasoline prices keep going up and up and up. Rodney says, Luke, uh, Russia doesn't need tankers to supply China. They share a border. Ah, I think you're wrong. Not much petroleum is going to cross the, the border. It is about 10 times cheaper to ship things like uh, petroleum via ships or any good, right? In general, it's like 10 times cheaper to ship things via the ocean or via a river than via road transport, let alone then airline transport is you know, another 10 times more expensive on top of that. So, China imports its oil along the ocean, and they do this for reasons because it's, it's just far more uh, economically efficient than importing things over land. So I just don't know uh, how much uh, China could import Russian oil over land, but if they do, the expenses will be 
will be very likely to be prohibitive. If you do that, you basically can start really choking. Yes, unless there's a pipeline. So I, I don't know what kind of pipeline uh, China and, and Russia have for petroleum, but I do know that uh, China has to import 90% of their energy via the ocean. So if they have to turn to rely on other sources, it will be prohibitively expensive. And uh, Rodney says China can build a pipeline in less than a year. Well, hundreds of millions of Chinese would starve to death if oil imports via the ocean were cut off. They would starve to death in less than a year. Right? In, in six months after prevention of China importing oil, hundreds of millions of Chinese would be dead from starvation. And a half a dozen countries could ensure this with just a couple of destroyers in the Indian and Pacific Ocean. The Ukrainian system, both from a population point of view, an economic point of view, and then finally from a governmental point of view. And that is what they're working on right now. That is when things get really brutal. Because once they have Kiev and Odessa, they can move through whatever portions of the country at any time as they see fit. That's when we're going to see the pogroms. That's when we're going to see the Quislings. That is when we're going to see them going rank and file through the population, looking for folks who are willing to fight. They're going to find them. Uh, when the United States went into an Iraq and Afghanistan, it wasn't nearly as difficult of a job as what the Russians are trying to do in Ukraine right now. And this is going to be a very bloody conflict. But from the American point of view, it's all about Europe. Because once the Russians control some of these key pieces of infrastructure, they're going to be able to lord that over the Germans, the Italians, the Poles, and say, look, you can either stop or you can go without Russian energy. And that's the fight that we're about to have. So they'll seize Odessa and they'll get to the capital and then they control the country and then hunt people down village by village, town by town and then threaten the Western European nations to shut down the energy pipeline that flows through Ukraine and say, you know what, I dare you to do something about this? Is that what the next step is? Well, think about it from Moscow's point of view. Either the Russians shut down the pipelines in Ukraine, or the Ukrainians bomb their own pipelines once they're losing their country. And when that happens, the Russians can say, hey, look, we've got this lovely project called Nord Stream 2. Why don't we ship some gas through that? Mm. So once we get to this point, the Russians will really be taking pry bars to the European relationships with one another and with the United States. Because at the end of the day, Ukraine isn't the end of the game for Russia. It's just the next step on the road. This started in Georgia. It went to Crimea. It went to Kazakhstan. Now it's in Ukraine. We're not done. The next steps are Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. And for that to work, you have to break the NATO alliance. They can do that with Ukraine. So you break the alliance through Germany. Is that right? If you threaten Germany and you turn off that pipeline that goes through Ukraine and you say it's time to restart Nord Stream 2 or you guys are going to be reading in the dark for the next couple months. Uh, does that exactly. move Germany in the right direction or not the right direction, but, you know, away from NATO? Absolutely. And I would underline it's not just Germany, it's Germany and Italy. Right. The Italians have done a great job of being very quiet this whole time. Yeah, they have. They're letting Germany be the bad guy, but they're right behind them. So you're saying it's also working. the Baltics are in play 
What kind of sure. move would that look like? Because those are NATO countries. Are you saying Moscow is not afraid of triggering Article 5? Today, they certainly would be. That's one of the reasons why they have to hive NATO apart first. Oh. If they can get to a position where the Europeans are not on the same page and the Americans, for a mix of reasons, might not trust the European partners anymore, then the combined population of the Baltics is under 8 million people. They would be far simpler to conquer than Ukraine. And do you think that, well, I think at that point we'd know the Germans and the Italians would be willing to sacrifice the Baltics, but would... The British, would the French, and would the Americans allow a split in NATO to do that? That is absolutely the right question. From Moscow's point of view, Bush did nothing against Georgia. Obama did nothing against Crimea. Trump did nothing against general moves across the entire Eastern Front. And now the Biden administration is finding that after 20 years of malinvestment in the NATO alliance, it's not able to do anything in Ukraine. So from Putin's point of view, this is actually getting easier and easier rather than harder and harder from a geostrategic point of view. So if they can break those relationships specifically between Washington and Europe, then it really doesn't matter what the Brits and the French do. Excellent. And your new book comes out when, Peter? We're looking at June, assuming that there's not another paper shortage. Okay, sounds good. And the new book is called Aptly? The end of the world is just the beginning. All right. You predicted it. Thank you so much. Okay, a little uh, Peter Zion there. So I was just reading this uh, terrific book on uh, El Chapo. It's called, uh, the book's called El Jefe, meaning the boss, the stalking of Chapo Guzman. So here's just a little bit from the book. You can read it in two hours. The day before the raid, Donovan got an email sitting at his desk in Virginia. He saw it had come from a colleague in customs who was writing to alert him. One of the subjects of his Chapo Guzman case was about to leave an airport in Van Nuys, California on a private jet for Mexico. Subject in question, the Mexican actress Kate Del Castillo was, according to the flight report, traveling with three other passengers. Scrolling through the email, Donovan clocked two of the passengers as Argentinian film producers. The third, however, was an American and a disaster. It was the actor, Sean Penn. Donna was familiar with the strange events that had placed the star in the middle of his capture operation. Earlier that winter, while Chapo Guzman was still in prison, he had asked his lawyers to contact Del Castillo, the actress, with yet another plea to make his movie, and she had finally relented. The project had been in turnaround for nearly a year. Everyone associated with it was either in custody or was running away from the kingpin for their life. Unaware that a new business partner had tried to kill both his writer and the assistant he had assigned to the project, Del Castillo reached an agreement with El Chapo to buy his life rights along with the two Argentinian film producers. After El Chapo escaped from Altiplano and was front page news for days, Sean Penn joined the team. While Del Castillo was convinced the involvement of a Hollywood celebrity would make the film more viable, Penn was noncommittal. He ended up uh, hooking up with uh, Del Castillo on this adventure. He was interested, Sean Penn was interested in meeting El Chapo having made his own arrangements to interview the Kingpin for Rolling Stone magazine. So Third Strike was the name of the operation to capture El Chapo and intersected with this three-ring circus not long after the operation started. So near the end of September 2015, two months after Guzman's escape, Del Castillo flew to Guadalajara, sensibly for the birthday party of a friend, but also to meet with Guzman's lawyers. Coalition had been spying on the lawyers for weeks and intercepted the actress chatting with them through, with their boss. 
So uh, when uh, El Chapo first heard about uh, Sean Penn, wanted to come meet him, El Chapo didn't know who Sean Penn was. So he had to Google Sean Penn. And uh, Donovan says, it all goes back to how El Chapo's mind works. Kate Del Castillo was in touch with him, the actress, when he was still in prison. Now that he was out, he was a big man again. He's always been the same, arrogant, cocky, narcissistic, wanted to be bigger than Escobar, who wanted to tell his story. The, uh, the Mexican Marines, their attitude was, F Sean Penn, the raid goes on as planned. But then there were great bolts of lightning, and so the strike team's Blackhawks never left the ground. Okay, I uh, sent Rodney Martin an invite. Uh, hope he gets that. Let's play a little bit more of that uh, trample. Uh, and there's a long history of, of, of that idea. It was a big deal in the American Revolution and the French Revolution. But as we know, those rights tended rights, to be rights, described very narrowly, uh, not a long list, and only a narrow set of people got them, white men, for the longest time. Uh, it was in part because the whole idea of rights was so closely connected uh, to the defense of free contract and property, um, which has helped uh, you know, those who had and not those who didn't, that uh, the, one of the first socialists, Karl Marx, could dismiss the whole idea of uh, human rights. Um, but we also know- Yes, uh, Karl Schmidt and Karl Marx were both equally dismissive of human rights, individual rights, natural rights, because they thought that the, these rights, if uh, they were taken seriously and, and made of first importance would reduce the realm of the political. That long ago in the 19th century, there were early versions. Because that's the American, that's the classical liberal Anglo approach that the whole purpose of government, the whole purpose of the nation state is to protect our private pleasures, to protect our property. That, that the only reason for government is to ensure and protect our rights. Of workers' rights, workers' movements and, and common people's movements did define things like a right to work, to employment. Um, uh, lots of, of rights we know about that the labor movement brought us that um, humanized the workplace, provided bidding, limited hours, excluded children uh, from, from work, uh, uh, never perfectly or enough. And in the 20th century, especially, we saw lots of what we call welfare rights, basic entitlements, not just to speak or to, to associate, but to things like uh, food, health care, sanitation. And it's really since the 1970s that um, what we call the, the history of economic and social rights has seen a kind of major development. Movements focus on it, mainstream human rights movements, uh, especially today. Uh, and there's human rights law. And so what I want to talk about in, in my, my last half is sort of what we should say about all that relative to, you know, the, a broader progressive politics or socialist movement. One topic I'm going to skip in the history of human rights that you may be interested in is um, uh, whether they're an imperialist concept. Because in my youth, uh, they were associated with and, and cited in justification of um, some interventions by great powers in places like Kosovo uh, or Iraq. And in Jacobin, among other places, there's been lots of discussion of what the left should think about human rights given the, their, their potential for being taken in an imperial direction, especially their connection with US imperialism. And I'm really glad to talk about that topic um, and, uh, and would love to pursue it with you. What I, what I wanna focus on now uh, for, the, for the, the, the lecture itself is economics, kind of what are the, what are the distributive um, um, uh, implications of the human rights movement today and what should progressives or socialists think about it. So 
Okay, let's uh, get a little bit more from another YouTube pundit hey, here. I've made a severe and continuous lapse of judgment, and I don't expect to be forgiven. I'm simply here to apologize about everything that I said in the last week about Russia, Ukraine. You know, I realized that I was losing a lot of subscribers. You know, I had been ratioed. I was losing money, friends, money, subscribers, and money. And the money is just so important. I mean, the lives are just so important to me about the money, about the Russian pe or the Ukraine the Ukrainian people in the city of Donbass or Donbass. And so when my livelihood, my moneyhood is on the line, I need to fight for and defend my duty for monetization. You know, Ukraine lives can't matter until all lives matter, which can't matter until black lives matter. You know, those despicable Russians born from the depths of hell, descendants of Putin himself. If you have Russian neighbors or friends, just go burglarize them, go take their stuff, take their houses, take their yachts, steal their stuff. If you have Russian colleagues, get them fired and replace them with a Ukrainian instead. And if you're a service person, then refuse to serve the Russian people or charge them a surtax. Maybe if you're a restaurant waiter, charge them an additional 20% simply as an economic sanction that you will personally place on them yourself. And you know what? Actually, I have an announcement of my own to make today. I'm announcing that I am also joining NATO because I too am fighting for my independence from my dad. He's a dictator and he's been telling me what to do. The next time he yells at me, I'm going to be launching nukes at him because I'm going to try to get NATO support for me. I'm going to need anti-air support because he just walks around ammo and bitcoins. I need ammo, not a right. And we're going to send all of this support to Ukraine as well. Knives, guns, chainsaws, axes, hammers, nails, staplers, aircrafts, Maybe our homeless people as soldiers, drugs, and even... I think we should send them nuclear weapons too. Let's just give them our nuclear weapons and have them launch an all-out offensive against Russia. And you know what? It's just going to be all-out nuclear war between these two people that just blow each other up. And we're going to... uh We'll go clean up afterwards, you know, afterwards we can go take their stuff. We'll take their ships, their yachts, their houses, whatever's left over there. Maybe their gas and oil. That might be kind of nice. And we'll send them our testosterone supplements as well just to beef up the machoism culture there such that people don't ever back down. This is a fight to the death. And I encourage everybody to just go all out and, you know, just don't give up. Never give up, ever. That's cowardice because I don't want any of you guys around here. I don't want to see anybody alive when I come in and take your stuff later on. And you know, I know you're worried and concerned, but it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And Zelensky... Well, he's a good-looking guy, isn't he? I think he's a man worth dying for, don't you? He looks like a hero. I mean, he can certainly act as one. He can portray a hero. He's got all the training we need to make a hero out of him. I mean, I even saw on TikTok, Zelensky may just be the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we don't know that, right? Like, he's pretty good-looking. He's kind of masculine, more masculine than me. This guy may be somebody worth laying down your life for. I know many people, many women would lay down their lives for a guy like this. And you know what? Maybe you should too, right? A lot of people are going to die, but it's a sacrifice that... I'm willing to make. And you know what else? While we're at it, let's let's buy some million token too, you guys. Let's just buy some million token. Go out there, get it. Milliontoken.org. Check that out. And while you're at it, pass the disclosure act. And while you're at it, confirm my nominees for the Federal Reserve. And Vitalik Buterin, let's seize his Ethereum because he's a Russian gas oligarch. And I've got another plan as well. We've been trying to censor everything, right? Across social media, all of the Russian propaganda. Well, let's just blind ourselves. There are these human blinders we can use and ensure that we never waver from that path of democracy, freedom, liberty, machine learning, React Native, JavaScript, computational AI, virtual reality, AR, Web3, crypto, diversity, racial justice, Steve Jobs, and justice for all. And so here's what changed my mind. You see, the other day, a fire actually broke out at a nuclear power plant in Ukraine. And so Zelensky has threatened a total nuclear warfare catastrophe on all of Europe. Calling your politicians immediately. Ukraine has 15 nuclear reactors. If there's a nuclear explosion, this will be the end of everybody, the end of Europe. If we don't go and help out this poor man, this this victim mentality, martyr complex, crybaby of a man who is refusing to take 100% ownership accountability for the outcomes that he has resulted this country in, not able to ensure the success of his own people, but rather casting blame on everybody but himself and his perhaps inability to resolve conflict, build consensus. If you even look at him the wrong way, he will threaten you with all out the nuclear catastrophic consequences. And you know, conflict prone people, well, they typically can't get jobs at places like Google or Facebook where you need that cross-functional teamwork skills. So we have to support this person as an actor comedian in government. And by the way, have you ever read that negotiation book, Never Split the Difference by the FBI hostage negotiator? Do you think that these sort of ultimatums work in hostage negotiation scenarios as well with terrorists? Maybe someone like that would be quite useful in a scenario like this. And by the way, that fire at the nuclear power plant was actually at a training facility. And as Twitter states here, Zelensky and the Ukrainian government essentially just lied about an imminent meltdown at the nuclear power plant. The fire was at a training building next door in order to call for NATO to set up a no-fly zone and draw the West into war. 
And what perhaps should be concerning for all of us is that Zelensky would rather wage war over a nuclear power plant and destroy it, causing radioactive fallout to all of Europe rather than just give up the nuclear power plant. It is a if we can't have it, then no one can mentality. Now, there's this thing called a proxy war where the West gets other countries to fight their wars for them because, hey, war's expensive. And so what we really want to do is outsource that to other countries to do the dirty work for us, which is why I'm so in favor of this war. And I Wow, that was that was This amazing. is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. as we spend the rest of the hour with author and Yale University history professor Samuel Moyne. Wars were brutal in the extreme, and there were no rules we prohibiting make, uh, brutal conduct well, uh, by brutal. design. Uh, what happened after 2001 is that in the midst of an extremely brutal war on terror, a new kind of war emerged. And it was one in which, really for the first time, uh, it was important to Americans to see their wars fought more humanely in conformity with uh, international rules that prohibit torture, that limit civilian death. And the worry is that even though this represents a kind of progress, it also helped uh, Americans sustain war uh, and help make the war on terror endless, even though uh, Joe Biden has withdrawn troops, he's promised to continue the war on terror in other ways. Uh, Samuel, you also make the argument that uh, a more humane war, this idea of a more humane war, uh, has accompanied an increasingly interventionist foreign policy. So if you could elaborate on that and also uh, the fact that you detail in the book of the role of human rights organizations in uh, advancing this view, uh, Human Rights Watch, for example, which you say initially uh, didn't take any position on war, uh, but then came to support certain humanitarian interventions. So I would start the, the story with Vietnam, which was a much more brutal war illegal in the international system, but also in blatant violation uh, with lots more torture than the war on terror and a lot more civilian death. And there was an anti-war movement in response to it. Uh, and the revelations of the My Lai massacre, which were so horrifying, added fuel to the fire of that anti-war movement. But then George McGovern, the peace candidate, really the last peace candidate we've had in this country, lost badly. And Democrats came to learn the lesson, I think the wrong lesson, that they needed to be as interventionist as the Republicans. Uh, uh, whom they were fighting for power. Uh, and so we see across the later years of the Cold War and into the 1990s, um, high-minded rationales for American intervention, even though many of these interventions, like the Kosovo bombings, violated the international rules that prohibit the use of force. And the question I'm posing is whether we've forgotten about those rules, even as we've come to focus on the rules that say, once you go to war, you, you can't fight brutally. Human Rights Watch is an excellent example of, of, of these, let's say, imbalanced priorities. So when it began monitoring wars in the 1980s and 90s, it promised never to take a stand on whether the wars themselves are unjust or indeed illegal. Um, but they did say they would monitor whether wars are conducted illegally, whether there's torture, whether there's excess collateral damage. Now, it's also true, as you mentioned, Nermeen, that Human Rights Watch has sometimes strayed from that commitment and endorse some great power wars. But my question is whether alongside groups like Human Rights Watch that we need monitoring the conduct knees, of wars, how they're fought, whether we need to get back some of the anti-war sentiment that was present in American history, at least um, intermittently before. After all, the laws of war uh, are incredibly permissive. What they allow states to do once war begins is extraordinarily violent, even when it's supposedly humane. And also remember that soldiers die, not just civilians on both sides. Uh, and so, our ancestors sometimes said we really need to keep war from happening. And it's that lesson that we've stopped learning in the age of the war on terror when we've let the humanity of our wars uh, compensate for the fact that they just keep on going. 
Well, Sam, uh, one of the other arguments you make is that, uh, and also this is a continuation of the effects of the Vietnam War, that once the draft was ended in the U.S., uh, the military uh, here embraced humanitarian laws of war uh, in an unprecedented fashion. You write, quote, a self-humanization of armed force without precedent in the history of any great power. Could you elaborate on that and explain why that was the case? So th this period of the later 60s and the 1970s was pivotal for the morality of how uh, war is fought around the world. Partly, there were all kinds of new states after decolonization, and they were made up of peoples who'd been the victims of brutal American and European wars for centuries, and they demanded more humanity. Europeans had stopped uh, their you know, empires and relied on the United States to protect them, and so they were in position to uh, ask for more humane wars now that they were no longer fighting them. Uh, Americans, uh, including in the military, understood that military force had to be inflicted in 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 a more ethical or at least more optically um, humane way. Because yeah, come on, guys, let's keep things optically humane. I, I think when you're waging war, what's uh, most important is that we keep things optically humane. And I get a little bit more here is Stephen Kotkin talking about the possibility that Russia will start slashing undersea cables. He's to rubble, which we're watching in real time now and which breaks everyone's hearts and is killing all those civilians, could just be the beginning of it. You know, we shut down their banking system. We say, you can't bank. Well, Peter, we talk about how communications are in the cloud. The Internet's in the cloud. It's actually in the ocean. 99% of all communications are in the ocean. And those undersea cables are mapped. And Russia has a submarine force. And so I can't bank. You can't bank. They can escalate. They can cut those cables between Europe and the east coast of the U.S. and Asia and the west coast of the U.S. And the ocean is a big place. And you can cut the cables in many areas. And then when they're fixed, which takes a lot of time, you can recut them. And so short of nuclear exchange, God forbid, we have the problem that Russia has tools that could really hurt, really damage us. The international financial system is worth a lot more to us, Peter, than it is to the Russians. European energy security, the energy security of our allies, and the second largest economy in the world, that's worth a lot more to us than it is to the Russians. So we need a diplomatic process somehow, which does not compromise Ukraine, but allows us to get out of a mutual maximalist escalation. We need stability more than Putin needs stability. Of course, everything in the short term is dependent on the heroism of the Ukrainians. But we need a process here that acknowledges that heroism, but also acknowledges the potential damage that being caused to us. I see a couple of scenarios, if you'll permit me. Yes, of course. Um, people talk about Putin occupying Ukraine. He cannot successfully occupy a country that big. When Stalin took only Western Ukraine in 1939, when he forcibly annexed it from Poland, Eastern Poland became Western Ukraine. Tens and tens of thousands of functionaries had to be shipped in to run Western Ukraine. 
And now we're talking about not just Western Ukraine, but all of Ukraine. When the Nazis conquered much of Ukraine, they didn't really administer it. Mm. You know, you And a super chat from Rodney Martin, $5. Thank you, Rodney. Realistically, do you think any country will sink or attempt to impound a Chinese or Russian tanker? I think not, especially a Chinese tanker. Well, I, yeah, I think it's, it's possible. Uh, I'm not sure how likely. See these maps on the territory when Russia forces to territory and they color it in as Russia? That's actually not Russian control. That's the penetration level of Russian activity, military activity. But they don't control that territory. They're not administering that territory. That territory is subject to rear guard action, like happened to the Nazis. The Nazis took Kiev. They grabbed all the luxury hotels. It was fabulous. They were luxuriating. And three days later, the booby traps began to go off and started killing them in Kiev. And in fact, Hitler decided he wouldn't take Leningrad because of what happened, the booby traps going off and killing the Nazi hierarchs in Kiev, that instead they would surround Leningrad and starve it to death. And the same plan for Moscow. And so you're an administrator in an occupied territory and you have a beautiful office and you don't know if it's safe. And you don't know if the woman making your tea is putting something in your tea. And you don't know if you walk out on the street, if there's something underneath your car that may not be friendly towards you if you turn the ignition. And so you have a situation where there's no way for Russia to successfully occupy Ukraine. Absolutely excluded because of the scale, the size of it. We know this from the Iraq war. You can knock over a regime, but occupying and running a country is a different proposition, sadly. And so we're not going to have that. What I fear is the outcome is Putin says, well, I can't have Ukraine. You can't have it either. I'll just break it. I'll just shatter it. I'll just smash it. I'll keep the Black Sea littoral, that beautiful coastline, all the way through Odessa and that piece of Moldova known as Transnistria and then a little bit beyond even, the Danubian Basin, the Danubian Delta, the Dnieper Delta, land bridge to Crimea, all the way through to eastern Ukraine, the so-called Donetsk, Luhansk, Trashkanistans that Putin recognized. Maybe he keeps that. Maybe he tries to kill the Ukrainian government, and then he just shatters everything and says, okay, you can have it back now, except for the parts that are really valuable, that coastal area on the Black Sea, making Ukraine landlocked. I fear that kind of outcome, Peter, because he doesn't need to reconstruct it. He doesn't need to own it. He just needs to shatter it, unfortunately. And so we need a situation where we not only can reverse any gains they have on the ground, but we can reconstruct or disincentivize the Russian troops. The big stuff that they're watching are defections, Peter. I see. Defections in Russia. It's one thing when an artist defects, when a filmmaker defects, when a literary critic defects, 
But what happens if a general defects, gets on a plane and flies to Brussels and has a press conference and says, you know what? We don't all support Putin. This is a bad war and we're against it. And many people in the military feel the same way I do or in the security services, the, the areas he cares about. So right now, Putin is clamping down, watching really closely his own security and military officials to prevent that kind of defection, which would be a massive blow to his regime and potentially embolden others. And so the, the game now is not just over Ukraine, but it's over the potential defections on the inside from Putin's regime. And just a handful, even one defection can be devastating for the image of a strongman regime. And as people get courage from those who step out first, the first one to show courage can potentially make the others, re remind the others of their courage. Okay. One thing that has surprised me in this crisis is how unified and, and strong Europe comes across. Stephen Wertheim, the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy, has got an article here in the Washington Post. Europe is showing that it could lead its own defense. In the long run, the United States can't contain both Russia and China. Europe's resolute opposition to Putin's war provides Europe is showing that it could lead its own shift. defense. In the long run, the United States can't contain both Russia and China. Europe's resolute opposition to Putin's war provides an opening for a strategic shift. Perspective by Stephen Wertheim When a great power takes a gamble, the world shakes. By ordering an attack on Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin has unleashed a chain of reactions whose endpoint no one can yet foresee. Already apparent, however, is one consequence for the United States. Overstretched to begin with, America has just seen its strategic burden increase. Just as suddenly, however, a new solution is coming into view, Europe is ready to take on greater military duties. Before the war, many Americans, including some political leaders, had determined to be more realistic about their country's strategic ambitions in an increasingly competitive world. Sensibly, President Biden had sought to stabilize relations with Russia and reduce U.S. warmaking in the greater Middle East while turning attention and resources toward managing a rising China. But Putin's Russia has refused to be sidelined. By invading Ukraine, it has caused NATO's eastern flank, with four countries bordering Russian territory, to demand reinforcements, and the United States has risen to the task. Biden has sent 14,000 American troops to Europe since the crisis began, bringing the total to 100,000. Providing temporary reinforcements is the right decision today in the face of Russia's bald aggression. But the United States should resist the inclination to revive its role as the military protector of Europe, especially since Europe is awakening to its responsibilities. Britain is sending troops to the Baltic states and Poland. France is pushing strategic autonomy for the European Union. And days after halting the Nord Stream 2 pipeline supplying natural gas from Russia, Germany reversed a long-standing ban on providing military assistance and sent weapons to Ukraine. Germany also vowed to spend more than 2% of its economy on defense, finally committing to meet NATO's target. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz declared his country, and Europe, to have reached an historic turning point. Both Americans and Europeans would benefit if Scholz's words prove true. 
In the coming years, European states should move to take the lead in their collective defense, and the United States should do everything possible to encourage them. To stake the defense of Europe on the United States, over the next decade and beyond, would be to answer Putin's rash gamble with a slow-moving gamble of our own. It might seem as though the United States will remain able and willing to protect all of NATO's 28 European countries far into the future. After all, America has orchestrated Europe's defense for the past eight decades. Yet it did so under two markedly different conditions. During World War II and the Cold War, the United States sought to stop totalitarian powers from conquering the region. An Axis or Soviet takeover of Europe would have closed off the entire continent to liberal, American-style interaction and influence, and put the Western Hemisphere on the defensive. All right, so I don't think Europe needs the United States, and the U.S. can instead uh, concentrate on their biggest peer competitor, which is China. Uh, here's a little bit more from Yale historian Samuel Moyne. Now, the United States abandoned peace and reinvented Because My Lai was such a public relations disaster for the military. Uh, people were shocked before it was permissible to uh, inflict the most kind of brutal violence on enemies, especially if they were non-white enemies around the world. And Americans celebrated when that violence was perpetrated. After My Lai, the military realized it needed to accept some constraints on the way it fights um, in the name of being able to claim that uh, it was it was a moral force. And so it was utterly important that even as humanitarians in Human Rights Watch and other groups stopped caring about whether there was American war and focusing on how it was fought, so too the military, which wants to keep its missions going, uh, was willing to accept some constraints on how those missions are conducted. I wanted to turn, uh, Professor Moyne, to President Obama's Nobel Prize speech. It was December 10, 2009, um, when President Obama received the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, Norway. This is a clip from his acceptance speech. We must begin by acknowledging a hard truth. We will not eradicate violent conflict in our lifetimes. There will be times when nations, acting individually or in concert, will find the use of force not only necessary, but morally justified. Where force is necessary, we have a moral and strategic interest in binding ourselves to certain rules of conduct. And even as we confront a vicious adversary that abides by no rules, I believe the United States of America must remain a standard bearer in the conduct of war. That is what makes us different from those whom we fight. That is a source of our strength. That is what makes us different from those we fight. That is a source of our strength. You repeatedly reference, Professor Moyne, this uh, Nobel acceptance speech in your book. Can you talk about the significance of this and the intensification of the drone wars? So what, what, what fascinates me about Barack Obama is that he was a public moralist and he thought publicly about the moral significance of law in particular. Uh, and he talked about it in that extraordinary address, as well as the one uh, four years later defending the use of drones. Now, Obama famously wanted to see himself as an heir of Martin Luther King Jr., and in certain ways he was. He claimed or uh, uh, repeated the, the belief that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. But where King had disputed the use of, of force when it's immoral, uh, going to war in the case of Vietnam, not just how uh, American force was used, Obama ignored the first issue or justified eternal war, as you heard, and focused on the second, uh, as if how Americans fight uh, would guarantee the moral pri pri propriety of the endless wars uh, they're still fighting today. When it came to 2013, uh, he gave uh, an equally remarkable speech at the National Defense University. Let me go to said, that clip, because we happen to have it. Yes, in May of 2013, um, at National Defense University, the one that the well-known peace activist, Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, interrupted. Uh, this is President Obama. When, when we, we went, 
he, he, he went on to, we went on. We're addressing that, ma'am. You know, I think that the, uh, and I'm going off script as you might expect here. Um, the, uh, uh, the voice of that woman uh, is worth paying attention to. Obviously, obviously, uh, obviously, I do not agree with much of what she said. And obviously, she wasn't listening to me in much of what I said. But these are tough issues. And the suggestion that we can gloss over them is wrong. And that audience member, I dare say he knew exactly who she was. Code Pink's Medea Benjamin, if you had trouble hearing, saying thousands of Muslims that got killed, will you compensate the innocent families? That will make us safer here at home. She said, I love my country. Drone strikes are making us less safe. Keeping people in indefinite detention is making us less safe. Samuel Mine. Again, it, it's, it's a, such a morally dramatic moment, not least because you might wonder after hearing that exchange, which one of them really deserved the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, but what I write about in my book, because I think that moment was in a way the, the climax of Obama's presidency, at least you know, judged as a moment when he was morally reflecting on his deeds. He 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 conceded uh, that uh, that that there, there there needs to be some control on war. And if you listen to her, mainly what she's asking is for. Uh, and let's be realistic. A major reason that uh, Barack Obama droned so many people and killed so many people, and with the bad guys that he was killing, so many innocents were killed, was to shore up his political standing. He did it to get reelected. He did it in large part for his own political interests, not necessarily America's interests. No different than many other politicians, such as John F. Kennedy, who got us into the Cuban Missile Crisis in large part to shore up the standing of Democrats heading into the midterm elections. Um, less inhumanity. What's amazing is that Obama himself goes on in the speech to say, maybe the problem is not so much the brutality of the drones, but that we're fighting endless war at all. Because, he says, uh, these kinds of wars will have effects not just on our victims, but on the perpetrators, too. And he anticipated, I think, in that address, if you read it, the coming of Donald Trump uh, uh, as, as a kind of, you know, um, a, a kind of consequence of what happens when nations uh, fight endless war. And sadly, we're still doing it. Okay. Play a little bit. We just have a second, Sam, but could you elaborate on that? Why is Trump an effect of that endless war? Well, so as, as Spencer Ackerman and so many others have written and, and talked about on your show, uh, uh, wars fought are never without consequences for the states that fight them, uh, even though, of course, we should be concerned fo first and foremost about those who die or those who are merely surveilled and haunted uh, by uh, drones and special forces. This really matters because it's essential that when Biden gave his two speeches the other week uh, defending the pullout from Afghanistan, he made utterly clear that while giving up on failed counterinsurgency, he's turning to, and maybe will intensify himself, the, the real fruit of 9-11, which is kind of endless counterterror, no matter what the constraints of international law say, unless they require the drones to strike or the special forces to visit with care for the victims. Samuel Moyne, I want to thank you for being with us. His new book, Humane, How the United... Okay, so Samuel Moyne, he's on the left, and uh, you, may, you may not like his leftism, but... Uh... So plenty of interesting critiques. Okay.
So most YouTubers use 30 to 50% of viewers within the first 30 seconds of their video starting. This can kill video performance. So what's at stake? What are the problems? Number one, instant title and thumbnail delivery. When people click on a video, they want to see what they came for. The best intros give instant delivery. Two, jumping into a storyline. The earlier the first storyline challenge point can begin, the better. If you look at a typical retention curve, the best holds are during these moments. You don't need two minutes of build to get there. Three, cutting down on unnecessary context. Biggest mistake I see is way too much context. People feel the need to over-explain what's about to happen. Show, don't tell, wherever possible. Putting your best foot forward. A lot of people are stuck in the mindset of saving their best moment. No, that's why I started today with my electric shaver review and then transitioned to nut and chocolate from Excellent Trail Mix from Nut Harvest. Just $3.70, I got this on Amazon Fresh. Put the best clip first. And uh, number five, set the stakes beyond just action. Intros need a compelling reason to keep watching. Is there a challenge, an enemy, a problem you need to overcome? Could you add a forfeit reward? Sex flow into the rest of the video. The best intro doesn't feel like an intro. Don't use highlight reels. Fancy transition sequences. The data from thousands of videos show these moments placed right after an intro lead to heavy retention fall off. Number seven, set a goal. Intros are heavily influenced by how many views a video gets, the niche, the content format. So this tip needs to be taken with context. Okay. Few tips there on how to succeed on YouTube. Maybe I should listen. All right, back to a book I read this week. Uncle Sam Wants You, World War One, and the Making of the Modern American Citizen. So it talks about how 100 years ago, Americans had much more of a sense of obligation than of rights. An American sense of obligation during World War One came from many places, from political traditions of republicanism, valued the common good over individual liberty, utopian visions of community, Christian beliefs that made of duty a virtue, paternalist notions that legitimated social hierarchies and demanded obedience to them. So in the years before World War I, voluntary associations such as clubs, schools, churches, party, parties, unions, much more powerful in American life than they are now. They organized much of American public life. These groups provided social services. They regulated the economy. They policed crime. They managed community norms. So schooled in this world of civic voluntarism, Americans formed their social bonds and their political obligations first to each other and then to the state. So in the absence of formal federal institutions, these voluntary associations acted as the state. They organized public life. They helped Americans feel a sense of collective identity. They carried out much of the practical work. So Americans of the early 20th century owed allegiance to an overlapping array of authorities, of which Uncle Sam's federal government was only one, perhaps not even the most important. Then as World War I rolled along and we entered the conflict, the state made ever stronger claims on its citizens, Wartime events prompted one of the 20th century's broadest, most vigorous, and most searching public discussions about the meaning of American citizenship. And you had the rise of mob violence and vigilantism and lawless violence. Uh, these things characterized 19th century American political culture. But when they were reduced, they also helped to wipe away that era's vibrant political culture of associational life. So they effaced the multiple authorities of pre-war life and thus they diminished the multiple loyalties that operated there. So Americans articulated their political obligations not to many things, but increasingly to just one, the state. When they imagined government rather than people as the source of rights, 
Americans unwittingly handed over to the state an array of coercive powers over matters previously governed by voluntary associations. So that progressives, people who brought America direct elections of senators, direct taxation initiative and referendum and a philosophy of participatory democracy should have turned away from the people is ironic but not surprising. So as angry wartime crowd silenced pacifists, labor radicals and small town ministers, the idea of appealing directly to the people locating democratic legitimacy in their associations lost its luster. So the state, even the seemingly tyrannical state of the 1920 Palmer raids, the civil libertarians despised, appeared the better option in a devil's bargain. Progressives' faith in the people became, for many, a post-war fear of the mob and of the crowd. So for much of the early 20th century, rights talk was only talk. Civil liberties would never be sustained by the rich institutional networks of everyday life that undergirded the culture of obligation. And so the lived experience of rights proved far weaker than the culture of obligation that preceded it. Bereft of institutions at the local or national level to create and nourish a meaningful culture of rights, American political culture limped into the 1920s with a contested and fractured sense of the obligations of citizenship, but with no real alternatives in place. So on the home front, Americans proudly called themselves vigilant citizens. Vigilant, good. Vigilante, bad. And they believed that they were doing work that was needed and explicitly requested by the national government. So leading public figures, drawing on long-standing traditions equating citizenship with obligation, did call on Americans to stand vigilant during the war. So appealing to habits of voluntary association, they supported the organization of vigilance movements nationwide. Committees of safety, women's vigilance, leagues, home guards, and the government depended on the voluntary work of such groups for the success of the nation's war mobilization effort. So one Justice Department official boasted, this country is being policed more thoroughly and successfully than ever before in its history. So as long as Americans have claimed the right to rule themselves, they have also insisted on the authority to police each other. So in the early republic, they tied vigilance to concepts of popular sovereignty. The vigilance was also a political practice, whereby collective policing by private citizens contributed to the community defense. These days, some Americans wish for obligations. They want to renew among Americans a sense of commitment toward our fellow citizens. Ninety years, they tell us, have put rights, not obligations, at the center of our political life. Individualism has corroded our common culture and our civic associations so that we even bowl alone. From such a perspective, the sense of voluntarism and obligation in the political culture of early 20th century America must astound. People sacrificed, fought, and even died because of commitments to a common political life that Americans seem no longer to share. They created those obligations in their everyday institutions, places where they expressed their understandings of citizenship and fairness, fairness membership and belonging, where they came to consensus about their obligations in face-to-face -face meetings. Must have been comforting see a familiar face at the draft board hearing or on the doorstep selling liberty bonds or being able to negotiate the terms of political obligation in the lodge or the club. This is democracy. Okay, let's get a little bit more here from uh, Samuel Moyne. It was an outline of the better world the war was supposed to bring about. Uh, so uh, my country's president, Franklin Roosevelt, some months ago, uh, my country nearly intervened militarily in Syria. Uh, and explaining why in a very dramatic address before the American people, Barack Obama. 
So this is a speech at Harvard in 2015. To whom you gave the Nobel Prize, raised memories, very specific memories of World War II. Gas was used to kill the Jews. And now Bashar al-Assad had crossed a line, a red line, by using a similar weapon. The Security Council might be deadlocked, but protection of human rights demands a response anyway. Shouldn't the US Congress authorize one in the face of the rule, never again? Well, I don't know. Uh, I'm just a historian. I don't know uh, what ought to happen in the face of the Syrian tragedy now that so many are dead and ISIS has arisen. But I want to investigate the origins of this commonplace, our commonplace that th the idea of human rights is deeply related to the uh, immediate memory after World War II of the Holocaust, because I haven't found any evidence for this proposition. And so I want to look further into post-war history and see when these two things did get belatedly entangled. What were the circumstances uh, for our immediate ancestor in remembering the Holocaust and thinking of human rights as what uh, our ideals are going to be in response to its memory? So I'm going to give a typology of three stages in, let's say, the conceptual evolution of human rights since the 40s. I brutally simplify to do so and uh, label those three stages the welfarist stage, the anti-colonialist stage, and the humanitarian stage. Human rights were sometimes invoked already in the 40s. Uh, the UDHR makes that clear. But originally, it was in a welfarist paradigm, which gave a rise later to an anti-colonialist paradigm before the humanitarian paradigm emerged. Start with the first phase. I think it's clear now that the public meaning of the idea of human rights in the 1940s, immediately after World War II, was one synonym for a project of national welfareism whose acceptable forms World War II had been about clarifying. The phrase human rights you can see on your chart had not been unprecedented in the 1940s, but experienced increased use because Anglo-American politicians invoked it before the Holocaust had crystallized as a German policy. Human rights for those politicians were a set of promises for why the war was worth fighting. Uh, it was an outline of the better world the war was supposed to bring about. Uh, so uh, my country's president, Franklin Roosevelt, whose interest in the fate of the Jews was negligible, began invoking human rights as the purpose of a future war before Japanese bombs had allowed him to bring the country into the conflict. And as the war progressed, it became clear that what was mostly at stake for the people who fought it was the new form of citizenship it would allow once Hitler had been put down. And that was going to be a revision of 19th century citizenship with its minimal state in the name of a new kind of state, a welfarist state providing social protection. And so it's no surprise whatever that the Universal Declaration features uh, social and economic entitlements, uh, like the right to work, health, even paid vacations, added to the list of rights inherited from the 18th century. Now, the basic idea of a social right was not new. In fact, within the history of the French Revolution, in the Jacobin Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, the rights to public relief and education had already been propounded. But now they became a consensus view. Uh, and more broadly, the welfarist consensus was probably at its height compared to any time before and any time since. You find examples in Great Britain's beverage plan, FDR's State of the Union Address for 1944 when he offered a second Bill of Rights to the American people. The International Labor Organization uh, reinvented itself in 1944 in Philadelphia and offered something called the Philadelphia Declaration, which said its goal in the post-war years was going to be human rights for workers. Because the UDHR's main addressee at this point was not the victims of atrocity, but the industrial proletariat of the transatlantic space. 
Okay, that's Samuel Moyne there, professor of international law. So another book I've been reading is an anthology by Jerry Z. Muller, one of my favorite authors. He wrote a terrific biography of Hans Fryer. He's written books on Jews and capitalism. He's got a book coming out on uh, scholar of religion, Jacob Taubes. And in 2020, he published Conservatism, an anthology of social and political thought from David Hume to the present. It was published by Princeton University. And here's a little bit from Chapter 7, which contains a lengthy excerpt from Carl Schmitt. So Jerry Z. Mueller introduces. Conservatives have always been hostile to democracy in its original meaning of direct rule by the people. Toward representative democracy, they have been suspicious. The intensity and implications of that suspicion have varied across time and national context. Where conservatives have accepted democratic institutions is usually been with skepticism toward the claims of democratic theory. Now, people on the left have their own problems with populism and direct democracy too. Conservatives have maintained that nominally democratic institutions are most likely to work when they are restrained and counterbalanced by non-democratic elements, which allow for the formation and influence of decision-making elites. Though the degree of their statism has varied from one national context to another, conservatives have on the whole emphasized the importance of the state as a guarantor of property and order, and is necessary to provide national defense against external military threats. Uh, the following selection by the 20th century German legal and political theorist Karl Schmitt argues that under some circumstances, parliamentary liberal democracy is incapable of creating a government strong enough to carry out the necessary functions of the state. His analysis of the political institutions of the later stages of the Weimar Republic has implications beyond its immediate context. Schmitt's analysis drew upon criticisms of parliamentary democracy already voiced at the turn of the century by the French radical right. The dilemmas which Carl Schmitt analyzed have resurfaced more recently in the language of public choice theory in the attempt to explain why the pursuit of self-interest by a plurality of social groups may result in unfavorable collective outcomes. And yet the UDHR was ignored in its time. And already I think we can see why. By 1948, we are already late in the day of moving states towards welfareism in the global north. Uh, there was a debate about how much welfareism, what form of welfareism ought to be provided, under what model of political economy. Should there be reformed liberalism, as in my country, social democracy, as in Britain or this region, Christian democracy, as in much of Western Europe, communism. What there was not debate about, a few malcontents aside, was that the state had to be updated to provide welfare. Now, this welfarist moment was nationalist. It was part of a project of creating welfare state by state or even nation by nation. And in fact, the Universal Declaration tells us that it's a template for nation states. It says it's a common standard of achievement for all peoples and nations. Few and far between were those who inferred from the document the premise that there would be inter or supranational rights protection. The document doesn't tell us, really. And few wanted it to occur. Few saw it, as far as I've been able to locate them, uh, to be about the problem of state atrocity, that our goal is now to stigmatize or even criminalize. Uh, you can put this another way, very abstractly, and it's to say that the 1940s kicks off the apex of the idea of sovereignty and the globalization of nationalism in world history. Now, what was the status of Holocaust consciousness in the 1940s? Uh, as I've mentioned already, it's conventional to assume that the world just responded to the Holocaust with human rights. But we can't find anyone 
who says so in the 40s themselves. I think it's much more plausible to see the UDHR as a response to depression and war, not atrocity and genocide. Actually, there's a whole field of history called the history of Holocaust memory, which has unveiled how spotty and selective the knowledge of German barbarism was in the immediately preceding period. So it's hard to imagine that human rights could have been a response to the Jewish tragedy per se. And by the way, the Nuremberg trials really weren't either because the Allies, and especially the Americans and the Soviet Union, wanted the Nuremberg trials to be most about interstate aggression, which they wanted to ban in the post-war world. Uh, and even to the extent they confronted war crimes, they didn't thematize the uh, German conduct we now consider to... Okay, how about a little uh, news you can use? Many eyes only ever move within the confines of a screen these days. The muscles involved eventually lose their tone like untrained legs get weak. Your focus drops and your head starts to ache. So one thing that I do is I periodically try to expand my field of awareness. And when I do, I feel my muscles relaxing and unnecessary tension dropping away. And another avenue that I get to expanding my field of awareness is to periodically let go of everything that I think I know. So let go of all my preconceptions let go of everything that I think I know. And when I do that, I feel my, my back relax and, and unlock and uh, my breath comes easier. So when you're focused on, on a screen, your body tightens and compresses around the object of your focus. So right now, instead of being focused on the screen, I'm looking at both sides of the room simultaneously. So when I sit up and down and I've got that expanded wheel field of awareness, my body moves much more smoothly and gracefully. So here's a good little Twitter thread. How to exercise your eye muscles for the 21st century. Basic movements, you have 12 eye muscles to expand your visual experience. These basic motions will ensure they're active if you look at a screen for a living. Do these at the end of the day. So don't let Zoom meetings and Netflix ruin your vision and stress your brain. Tracking exercises, train your eyes to follow a moving target without losing focus. And then go outside. You'll read about this one a lot on Twitter because it's important. Your body needs the sunlight and outdoor landscapes much more stimulating than a confined room. Alternate your focus between near and far targets. And then I eight ball training. Your eye muscles work like crazy and you feel a lot of blood flow. The eye, the eye, the, the, is the, the eyes are the windows to the soul. To have been the core of the destruction of European Jewry in Eastern Europe. So I conclude disconcertingly, and I, I am surprised by this myself still, that human rights were not, really could not have been in the 1940s, a concept linked very strongly with atrocity in particular, uh, or the Holocaust even uh, more specifically. It doesn't seem to have correlated well with the supranational protection of individuals, which only a few advocated. Uh, there were a few. But as I say, uh, the main international function of the UDHR in real time seems to have been as a template uh, for states updating their promises from a 19th century to a 20th century model. It wasn't a contribution to international law uh, at the time. Uh, it was internationalist in source, but as a template for national welfare citizenship. Conversely, if we do look at innovations in international law in the same era, 
I think we have to put the Universal Declaration to one side. Um, you will know that the Nuremberg trials took place, which I've already mentioned. Uh, the Genocide Convention was passed, which have a, a much closer relationship to World War II and the expectation that war would uh, prompt atrocity. And the Geneva Convention uh, conventions uh, were also updated in 1949. And yet, if we play the children's game of comparing these four pillars of post-war innovation, the UDHR, the Nuremberg Trials, the Genocide Convention, and the Geneva Convention, it seems quite difficult to associate the UDHR with the other three. And not just because none of the other three so much as mention the notion of human rights in real time. Uh, I think that's because uh, our ancestors in the 1940s worked in a, a sophisticated way with a kind of um, background set of assumptions about a, a causal chain. Of course they cared about the worst that could go wrong, and they passed a genocide convention, uh, which had to do with the destruction of European Jewry in 1941 through four, chiefly. They were concerned about the conduct of war, the treatment of POWs, uh, the killing of civilians generally, which is why they updated the Geneva Conventions. Uh, they cared about the commission of aggressive war starting in 1939, and that is why they held the Nuremberg Trials. But what they cared most about was looking back very far in the causal chain to the Great Depression, which in their minds had caused the rise of dictatorship in 1933 and later the war and atrocity. So if you think of it this way, you begin to think that the UDHR is the boldest, but also the most distant uh, attempt to respond to the war because it tries to intervene earliest in the causal chain by providing the kind of welfare citizenship that would keep the 1929 to 1933 dynamic from recurring. Now, you may know uh, that the preamble to the UDHR mentions that uh, it uh, is propounded in part in the face of, quote, disregard and contempt for human rights that have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind. So I have to be very clear that I'm not trying to totally untether human rights from its companions or indeed from the outcome of war. But did that phrase mean the Holocaust specifically? Well, I think there's reason to doubt it. Every nation had had its horrors. The Nazis were responsible for many terrible things in the lives of most peoples. The most famous outrages on humanity in the 1940s were Leningrad and Lidice, not Belzech or Treblinka, which were basically unknown at the time. Uh, and not surprisingly, if this is your way of thinking about the situation, uh, no diplomats of any nationality mention the Jewish fate in particular in the UN debate in any of its committees or in the General Assembly in the year up to December 10th uh, when the Universal Declaration was propounded. So I spent a lot of time on this earliest moment just because I think people are most skeptical Everybody about my views about it. And I think it's important to be nuanced about the ways in which the UDHR was and wasn't related to the war and the reasons why it's doubtful to think it had any connection to the, uh, to the Jewish tragedy per se. Okay, let's get uh, a little something here from Ian Bremer. Hi, everybody. Ian Bremer here. Um, and uh, as we head to the weekend, uh, we are sadly uh, into the second week of this Russia war in Ukraine um, and no end in sight. Uh, you, of course, if you're in Russia, you're not supposed to call it a war. It's actually illegal to call it a war. It's a special military operation. If you call it a war or otherwise um, describe fake news on the war as is um, considered by the Russian government, uh, you face up to 15 years in prison. Uh, the level of brutality that the Russians are exerting upon innocent Ukrainians who have done nothing wrong other than uh, 
elect an independent and democratic government and want to determine their own future, uh, as well as the brutality that the Russians are increasingly exerting against their own Russian citizens, is horrifying um, and has met with revulsion with most of the world. Uh, There was a um, General Assembly, UN General Assembly uh, resolution condemning the Russian invasion and four countries in the world voted with the Russians, Eritrea, Syria, Belarus, and North Korea. It is an astonishing level of opposition, strong opposition, and strong opposition that is willing to pay a serious price in order to be in strong opposition that we're seeing from countries around the world. Here's the problem. Um, The Russians, yes, they will win militarily. They will be able to capture Kiev. They will be able to remove Zelensky from power in Kiev. Um, But I see no circumstance under which Putin emerges from this crisis in anything but a dramatically worse position, both politically inside his own country, economically in terms of how Russia is doing, as well as geopolitically and Russia's position, particularly as it relates to European security. There is no circumstance under which I can see that Putin wouldn't have been radically better off if he just hadn't invaded Ukraine. And on the one hand, you can say that's good because it means he's losing and you want someone to lose when they take. Okay, that guy's a mistake. Putin is a problem. But Mm -hmm. the Russians have 10 times the army that the Ukrainians do. And as so long as no one else launches an invasion of Russia proper or sends regular troops into Ukraine, they will win this. What about Putin's remark, I think, on Sunday? Using nukes if anybody interferes. Well, it doesn't make me feel great, but the Russians have done this off and on for 70 years. Uh, And so all the people in the West who make their policies a responsibility, they all perked up. They all looked at it very, very closely. And they're like, okay, nothing's really changed. It's just rhetoric. All of the, I think that the term they use is muscle memory within Mm -hmm. the nuclear forces. Nothing has moved. This is just Putin being a bit of a prick. Uh, It's not something you should ignore, but it's also not something you should overly worry about. What do you think Putin wants on a personal basis? Is he just an evil tyrant? Is he looking to make a name for himself uh, in a a really bad way? Or, or, Or is he desperate because he knows his time is up? Right. I think those are the kind of the top three categories here. Okay. <laughs> he is an evil tyrant. He yeah. is a dictator. And now everybody but Tar- Tucker Carlson admits it. Even Tulsi Gold Gabbard and uh, Bernie Sanders have, have switched sides finally. Second, he is desperate for his country because he realized that demographically they're in collapse and they have very little time left. And yeah, he wants to be remembered as the next Peter the Great or Catherine the Great, the, somebody who remade the Russian condition and allowed the country to coast on those successes for decades to come. It's our job to make sure he fails at all three. Are we going to be able to do that? And how the United is that States going will not be out? intervening directly because Ukraine is not a, a NATO ally. Have you seen the reports of that massive 40 plus mile long convoy yes, coming of out of Belarus? I, I was thinking that one of our drones could easily take care of that. But... Well, it would take more than one. <laughs> That's 
kind of a, a good example of how the Russians suck at logistics. Mm -hmm. So if it came to a direct head-to-head -head fight between the United States and the Russians, one, our military is brilliant at logistics. It's like it's sure. Disneyland, the military, everybody else. Right. And the only thing they're better at is taking out a large number of vehicles that are in a line. Yeah. So sure. uh, if it did come to a regular war between Russia and the United States, we would wipe the floor with them in terms of the armored warfare and the artillery battle. And right. then they would feel that they would have no choice but to consider nukes. There's no reason to expect the United States to directly intervene. Right. We will play favorites. We are playing favorites. Congress is going to be asked tonight to send at least $6 billion in direct military equipment uh, to the Ukrainians. I have, I figured that'll pass in a matter of seconds. Mm -hmm. We have sent a whole lot of javelins. We don't know how many, probably at least a thousand launchers by this point, and every country in NATO is sending everything they have. Uh, one of the fun things about NATO is that during the Cold War, there were different tiers of military equipment because some countries were more advanced. When the Cold War ended, everyone spent 15 years upgrading their equipment and they handed the older stuff to the new allies in Central Europe and Turkey. Now, all of those countries have upgraded their equipment and they're sending all their hand-me-downs right. to Ukraine. Okay, let's say hello to Elliot Blatt. Hi, look, how are you doing? Blessings. My meeting's over. It was a doozy. Blessings. Yeah, thanks for the blessings. Love is all need, around I, us. You never meet I, alone, bro. Okay, so I, so I got some physiological problems now after the meeting. So. Okay, talk to me. Well, I just have this like creeping tension that goes sort of up my back and shoulders and into my head. And um, it's like, I don't even know how to get rid of it now. It just sort of happens. It's, it's a very familiar feeling to me. So, you know, what, what would you recommend, Alexander, technique-wise? Uh, I remember a few weeks ago, I was suddenly under a lot of pressure, and my neck just seized up. It's like, mm -hmm. ah! So... Acutely, like, enough to make you yell like that. No, no, I didn't, I didn't yell, I didn't say anything, but it, it wasn't acute. It was, uh, but it was more than moderate, but less than acute. I, I grabbed it, like I grabbed it and tried to, so, mm -hmm. so I, I don't have, you know, 100% uh, direction over my body, but uh, I think one thing that always helps is to lie down and with the head a little bit supported. And then another thing that I find helps is to let go of everything that I think I know to try to get into a space where I'm simply in awareness rather than judgment. So are you in a lot of judgment right now? Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling acutely judgmental. Um, and, you know, I guess the problem is with me, um, but it's not like I have control over it, you know? Like, is there a way to sort of short circuit this reaction so it just doesn't happen? Yeah, let go of everything you think you know. Just be in the present, just yeah, like, just be, be purely be, in let, whatever happens, surprise me, just take me by surprise. Well, even though you think you're just trying to get a very basic community, basic point across. And then people react to you as if that you're speaking some strange language and just say, oh, they're not dumb. They're just speaking a different language. Or something. Yeah. I mean, what is your love language, Elliot? Maybe they weren't speaking your love language. No, it certainly wasn't a love language they were speaking. 
Um, so I don't know. I don't know why I called it. This is my first Redux call, like two calls within one show. But you're really... in pain, bro, and, and <laughs> I, I'm here to help. I, I, I am in pain. I, I feel your pain. Um, but uh, it feels like this basic phenomenon, this frustration with life. You know, this. There was a period in my life when things seemed to go really, really smoothly, right? And now every day brings with it an obstacle that I must surmount. You know, there's never been like a clear sailing day. I, I can't remember the last time I had a completely clear sailing day. Now, are these just a property? Are these just because of childhood? You get these in childhood. And once you become an adult, you just never have an easy day again. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it does have to do with, with childhood. So it's both certain circumstances that are going to trigger uh, responses that you had in childhood. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, not, not every circumstance, but certain circumstances will bring, bring up a response that you used a lot in childhood. Yeah, I guess I was using childhood as a time when, you know, it was completely carefree, you know, really just carefree. Every day was like a new day and new discoveries and fun things to do. And, uh, you know, it was just a joyous period. And then the next day brought something very similar. And now every day has this little mountain that I must climb, this mountain of frustration and anger and drudgery uh, that I thought would just be temporary, you know? And it's basically been the case for the last 30 years. Wow. Do I need a vacation? Maybe I just need a vacation. When did you last take a vacation? I can't remember. I can't even remember. Long time ago. I went skiing like four years ago. Then COVID hit. I was about to have him and COVID hit. And then things got jumbled up. And, you know, I don't want to, I didn't call him to whine about my plight. Look, I was. No, it's, it's interesting. So. Yeah, I think if you're in a state of awareness rather than judgment that uh, you'll be less likely to have physical pain, your body will be less likely to lock up if you're simply, oh, you know, aware of what's happening and aware of what other people are saying or thinking or feeling, uh, as opposed to judging them for what people are thinking, thinking saying, doing. Uh, it's a lot easier to be free and easy in your body. Now, when you had your little lockup in your neck, were you thinking or feeling, or was it just purely physiological? No, it was it was <clears throat> it was a combination of circumstance uh, taking me back to childhood feelings of you know I'll never be able to figure this out. Hmm. So hmm. I, I sometimes I spiral, I make a mistake, I get anxious, I make a mistake, then I get more anxious, and then I make more mistakes, and then I get increasingly anxious and fearful, and it's just a downward spiral. And then do you do things that compound the mistakes? Yeah, well, when when I beat myself down for making the mistake, I get more anxious. And uh, yeah, I, I'm uh, quite familiar with downward spirals. <laughs> well, all right. Um, so what is your take on how is this Ukraine thing going to play out in your mind? Do you have a theory? Uh, yeah, I don't think that uh, 
Putin is going to occupy the Ukraine indefinitely, and I don't think he's going to try to take over Europe. Uh, he's going to wreck Ukraine, and then I think he's going to probably pull out of most of the uh, most of Ukraine. Pull out. Okay. Yeah. I think what he's going to do is um, sort of take over half of it or install, you know, if you look at the map of Ukraine, like there's the the eastern half and then the western half. The eastern half is mostly Russian speaking. It's probably ethnically more Russian. And then on the western half, it's less Russian. So there'll be some sort of partition and they'll kick out, I forgot his name already. The prime minister of Ukraine. The, Zelensky? The, so yeah, they'll kick out Zelensky, put in a Russian puppet, and um, everyone will be like, okay, you know, they'll figure out some way to phrase it as though, you know, it's a win-win or everyone, both sides get to save face and, you know, we all live happily ever after. Yeah, I think something like that. I think it, it's more likely that uh, Putin gets his way than Ukraine or, or the West or the United States gets their way in this. Hmm. Okay, that's good. So no, no nuclear uh, holocaust. Yeah, I hope not. What's what's uh, your analysis of what's uh, going on for you physiologically after the meeting? Um, I guess I um, I figure out I, I repress my frustration. Yeah. with the ineffective communication and I store it as tension somewhere in my body. Yeah. So it's like, um, I know there's a, you know, there's a definite connection between your mind and your body and your emotions. And, um, but it's because I, I really, you know, I'm used to conversations like ours being pretty crisp and relatively efficient where we have a point to make, we make it rel rather relatively economically. We sort of grok where each other's going and the conversation as a whole is more or less a pleasant experience. Right. And so there's not these roadblocks, these obstacles. Like if you're dealing with somebody's really low IQ about, you know, on the street, let's say they bring a raccoon and they put it in a McDonald's or something. And you're like, Hey bro, don't put a raccoon in McDonald's. Um, and they're like, why not? You know, having to explain that is intrinsically a frustrating experience, right? Yeah. And so I feel like I'm in that situation where I'm trying to explain to people why um, bringing a raccoon in McDonald's is a bad idea. Yeah. You know? I don't know, Luke. Okay, Luke, I have a question for you. Another topic. Do you mind if I ask? No, go ahead. Okay. Do you think there the whole industry of screenwriting, are you tapped into that world at all? Do a little know? bit. So do you know like vague, you know, the general contours of that uh world? Yeah. Is that a viable uh career path or is that just completely impossible? Like being a screenwriter for either movies or television. Yeah, it's uh I mean there are hundreds of people who make their living doing it. Right, but I'm sure there's thousands of people that would like to, right? Right. It's uh, so, competitive. It's not it's not as easy as being a secretary. 
Right. Now, is it, um, how should I say, locked up? You know, is it, is it a merit-based thing or is it a sort of uh, internal, no, you got to know someone type of thing? I think it's as merit-based as anything else. I mean, not as merit-based as a 100-meter dash, but uh, fairly close. Okay. So um, could, could you make like a substantial living or would you just be scraping by? It would depend. Uh, some people do really well. Uh, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah, I was just curious. Because um, with all these like, you know, with Netflix and Amazon and Apple, everyone getting into this entertainment game. Yeah. It seems like there'd be a lot bigger market for uh, writers. Yeah, there is. I mean, there's more scripted TV now than ever before. Yeah. And uh, okay, that was just, yeah, I was curious. I had an idea, you know, I had an idea, but I didn't even want to like even think about it seriously if I knew that it would be a complete dead end. You know, I don't have any time for dead ends, but um, I'll think more about it. Okay, great. Yeah. So, but so do you know screenwriters like yes. in your daily life? Yes. And uh, are they good company? Are yeah, I mean, they tend to be yeah. very smart, very funny. Yeah. Writers, you know, are funny people, generally speaking. That's yeah. What they, uh, so. And they know how to tell a story. I mean, they're really it's, good at structure. Yes. Yes. I feel like I've developed that through software being able to structure a story, right? Mm -hmm. I used to like really freak out, not not be able to prioritize like scene A and scene, you know, which comes first, scene A, how to do a establishing scene, you know, all that type of logic used to be very difficult. Uh, right. But now I can almost like see things uh, as if they're on a TV screen. You know, I could see the entire structure in, in my head, um, which is sort of like a hard one battle for me. So anyway, I'll uh, I'll uh, uh, I'll do some research. So is it all now? Is all the entertainment centered in LA, or is it is there some in the Silicon Valley now? It's uh, dominantly in LA, but it's spread out across the country and across the world because often states and cities give uh, tax deductions and they compete to get uh, movies shot there. So, for example, Breaking Bad wasn't set in the place that uh, the the story was because of tax incentives. And I was just watching The, the Dropout, the, the Hulu series about uh, the Theranos girl. And mm. it, it, the Stanford scenes were obviously shot at UCLA. So I know the Stanford <coughs> campus, I know the UCLA campus, and, and I'm watching them. It was like, wow, why are you shooting at UCLA? It's obviously UCLA, not Stanford, but mm -hmm. uh, there'd be reasons of convenience. Yeah, remember that show Reno Nine One One? That was shot in LA. I remember being very devastated to learn that. <laughs> uh, but wait a second, Breaking Bad. So didn't it? So you're saying it wasn't shot in New Mexico? It was shot in LA. I, it wasn't shot either. It was shot somewhere else. But uh, uh, oh. the power of the dog, that Netflix uh, movie, 
that was shot in New Zealand, but the story is set in Montana. Wow. So, so um, we can't even make our own movies, huh? Depressing. We got to drill our own oil, Luke. We got to do. We got to start becoming like a real country again. Do our own things. Keep it local. Well, there are many things at stake. If you can shoot something really cheaply somewhere else, then yeah. But is it is it that? It sounds. It blows my mind. Like. Is New Zealand ah, is that so much Breaking cheap? Bad, Foolish Me, Breaking Bad was filmed primarily in Albuquerque. Okay. Oh, they were going to set it in a different state. I think they were going to set it in California, but they moved it to New Mexico for tax reasons. Yeah, I see. Um, so what did you think of that series? Oh, I, I thought it was great. I, I watched it twice. Second time through, I, I got commentary on it and so that I, I could deeper understand each episode. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. I liked it as well. Like that one scene with the, um, I don't know if you remember it when. The plane crash? Yeah, I remember that, that there's at a junkyard and he's hidden inside of a, uh, like a trailer in a junkyard. I forgot the context, but then they yeah. started playing this mariachi music. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was hilarious, yeah. This is, that was probably the best scene on television I've ever seen. I, I laughed out loud. Uh, anyway, so I don't know. Strange time. One set. Of, remember, remember? Okay, remember? Like three weeks ago, we were all freaking out about Neil Young and Spotify. Doesn't that seem like innocent days? <laughs> <laughs> like just completely petty. Yeah, yeah. It's like before nine eleven. Before nine eleven, the Los Angeles Times and uh, LA Magazine, they're all working on major profiles of me. Yeah. And then 9-11 hit and those profiles went up in smoke. Is that true? Yeah. No way. No, I spent hours with these reporters. Oh, so you were you were on the ascent and then you got taken down like the towers, huh? Yeah. Times change, yeah. priorities change. I remember when those towers came down, man, that was a sight. Where awesome. were you that day? Tell me, walk me through. Where were oh, you? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm, uh, so I was living in Boston then. Uh, I was at work. So I, I remember walking to work that day. It was like a, you probably remember it was a brilliant, brilliant day. It was like a nice, crisp, sunny autumn day. Yeah. Like with a gentle breeze. It was, you know, so I walked to work, which is like a mile and a half. And I was thinking about, Pedro Martinez, the baseball pitcher. Yes. So he was, you know, he was the sensation back then in Boston. And I was thinking about the curveball and the motion on the curveball and all these, you know, details about sports and pitching. And I just kind of mulling this as I'm walking, you know. And then, and then I, you know, I get to work and then, uh, uh, you know, it happened right around, I think it was like 9 20 right pretty early in the morning right more or less at the start of the day boss comes over and says uh can't send some joke like yeah it looks like somebody missed the runway at LaGuardia and he shows me a picture of the hole the gaping hole in one of the buildings and um there were a bunch of guys so the company I was working for was in the process of being taken over by IBM <laughs> so there were all these IBM people walking around 
Now, these are the old school IBM people. And old school IBM people had this thing where they always dressed in blue. Everything, it would, IBM used to be called Big Blue. And so there was a corporate culture of only wearing blue, right? Just different shades of blue, but it was blue, 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 blue. He's got blue pants, blue shirt, blue, 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 you know? So all these people from IBM, like grown adults are walking around and they're all noticeable in the office because they're the people wearing just strictly blue. It was bizarre. So I was mulling that over and, um, and they were just dumb people. You know, they're just kind of career corporate types that didn't really do much. They just showed up at work and marked time. And so this guy starts opining, opining about, oh, there's no way this is a one of these IBM people is like, there's no way this is a terrorist attack. No way. There's no possible way. This is an accident. You know, he's just opining into the, into the air. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is totally a, ter uh, a terrorist attack. And then he's like, no way. And then boom, the second plane hits. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> you know, it was like a mic drop moment for me. <laughs> so anyway, uh, then, you know, they, uh, you know, it was like the next hour quickly unfolded what was happening. And so we got, they let us out of work early. And I walked back, I walked back home you know, and all my thoughts about Pedro Martinez and all that other stuff had just gone completely out the window. <clears throat> and then I'm nearly home and I see this guy I know with whom I've had lots of crazy business deals. He's a colorful character. I won't go into the details now, but he's, um, you know, he, he's sort of like a Kramer figure. Mm -hmm. And I see him and he's loading up his Jeep. And, and I go, you know, gee, where are you going? He says, oh, I'm moving to New York. Completely oblivious about what has happened. <laughs> he had just decided to move to New York on that day and was like loading up his truck and going to drive to New York to live there. And he wouldn't believe me when I told him what had happened. You know, he was totally incredulous. And then to make matters worse, he goes anyway. So anyway. And how does it work out for him, do you know? Uh, I would imagine poorly everything. Nothing ever worked out for this guy because he was so lazy. He's one of these guys that <clears throat> you know, has big dreams, but he just expects everyone else to do the work, right? All the hard bits that he doesn't want to think about, he just expects other people will do, right? It'll just happen. He just sort of indulges in these fantasies where he'll just, you know, introduce someone else who will know someone else who can do it, right? And all his job is to do is dream up an idea and then put the right people together. This is this fantasy that he lives in. And this is why he's always basically scraping along the bottom. <laughs> you know, he'd never really get it in gear, but he had lots of connections, right? So that's, um, that was his, his survival strategy was, he thought he could just sort of leverage his connections all the time. And, and how did 9-11 change you? If it did, yeah, it changed me a lot. You know, like uh, I stopped thinking about sports. I had no interest in sports after that. I did sort of go on like a prepper thing, like a prepper kick. Yes, I I thought maybe you know this was it, um, and that it was time to prep. Um, so I went. I would drove to Home Depot and I bought a lot of storage containers and things, and then. Um, and then I plan to buy lots of supplies, like we were talking about earlier about preparing for an earthquake. 
I was sort of thinking about all these things I was going to stock up on. And basically by the next day, I'd sort of settled down and figured I was overreacting. But yeah, it was, I was, uh, I was terrified for a second there. I thought things were going down in a big way. And where you are, we've got to invade these countries and bomb them uh, into smithereens. I was more confused than that. I didn't understand. I didn't know if there was, a, I didn't know what the solution was, you know? Um, and when the whole idea of invading Afghanistan, that came first, I thought it was just simply a military mission, right? I didn't think it would turn into a 20 year occupation. So I'm like, yeah, whatever, sure. I, you know, I believe the narrative. I wasn't really that politically uh, attuned back then. And <clears throat> I just sort of believed what I heard on the news. And I figured, well, yeah, we got to fight him there so we don't fight him here, that kind of stuff. And so um, I certainly wasn't opposed to it, uh, but boy, I had no idea what the future had in store, you know? I didn't know what, what all the consequences of 9-11 would be. And uh, how long till you flew on a plane? Um, don't recall. It wasn't For me, long. it was like a year or two later that I flew Something on a plane. Something like a year, yeah. And I forgot to report my laptop. I didn't take my laptop out as I was going through security. And so they said, you're now a person of suspicion. And oh, down. really? You yeah. You were a person of suspicion because of. I um. I'm never a big flyer. I don't really. I'm not much of a traveler, so I don't travel that often. Like other people do. I see traveling as an immense ordeal. Like I don't enjoy it at all. So I didn't really. I would only travel on a sort of as needed basis. So it didn't affect me that much. So I I'd, I'd sold uh, LukeFord.com about uh, uh, three weeks prior. And then just on a spur, I thought I need to get away. And so two weeks prior to 9-11, I just went, went to a nearby car rental and, and took off, uh, rented a car and just started. No, 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 I didn't rent a car. I just drove my van. I had a one-ton van. So I just started uh, driving north. There was a, a girl I'd met on the internet in Vancouver. And so... I, I also had an advisory committee, like a group of people that I trade emails with uh, pretty much every day. And so I had a member of the advisory committee in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I went, went all the way up to Vancouver and then uh, was, was coming back and I was beating a member of my advisory committee in San Jose on Monday evening. And so we, we met at a sizzler, had dinner, and then went back to his place. And I, I decided uh, to sleep in my van rather than at, at his place. And so I was sleeping in my van and I heard people saying, did you hear the Pentagon's being hit? Mm. And someone said, yeah, we're at war. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I was just waking up at about 7.30 a.m. And I turned on KGO radio and uh, heard what was happening. And so I went inside, banged on the door, woke up my friend, turned on the, the telly. And, you know, we watched the pictures of the towers coming down and mm -hmm. how all the airports were closed. And then I thought because the airports were, were closed and all the flights were getting grounded, I then thought that driving back to LA would be an absolute nightmare. And I thought, okay, I'm just gonna risk it. I'm just gonna go do it now. And there was very little traffic. And 
so I was able to fly back to, you know, fly along the road, right back to LA in about six hours. And I was surprised how little traffic there was. And I did have a strong feeling of I wanted to be home. I wanted mm. to be at home with all this instability in the world. I wanted to be at home. And that was the first time that I started watching Fox News. So prior to that, I'd, I never really watched Fox News. But I got home and I just wanted to turn on the TV and find out what was going on. And uh, yeah, I turned on Fox News and uh, there I was. Uh, and so what did you think about this? Um, what did you think about the Afghanistan campaign when it was proposed? Uh, I thought it was a good idea, but I didn't think about it too too deeply. There was an explosion of war blogs. And so I'd mm. been blogging for four years at this time. Now suddenly blog was the word of the year in 2001. And mm -hmm. a lot of my journalist friends were starting war blogs. And so they were much more gung-ho. Uh, I think I was emotionally gung-ho. Like emotionally, I, I wanted to see the terrorists smashed, but mm. I didn't think too deeply. I thought it'd go like the, the Gulf War in 1991 against Saddam. I thought we'd just go in there and smash everyone and uh, we'd show the might of the U.S. military. And I, I, yeah, I, I thought that was, I didn't have any big problems with it. On the other hand, I wasn't arguing for it either because I was busy enough. I was blogging on the porn industry and then I was blogging on uh, Los Angeles journalism and uh, Jewish journalism, things like that. And so I didn't, I wasn't really thinking about international issues, but I did not foresee the absolute disaster that those two occupations became. No, right. Yeah. I, I remember those days, um, you know, it was Laura Ingram. Yeah. She was on the radio a lot and she was the one screaming about the necessity to go into Iraq. And uh, I think even Ann Coulter too, she was very much on yes. that train. And um, it was it's weird uh, how, um, I don't know, I, I took that, I took, you know, it was like if you were, if was it the chicken hawk? Not chicken hawk, but uh, yeah, the chicken hawks were those who didn't want to fight, right? But if if you didn't, um, <clears throat> what was it? Surrender monkeys. Surrender monkeys. Yeah, or yeah, right? the French. Remember how the French were suck? You know how they yeah sucked? something something surrender monkeys, yeah. right? Yeah, and I didn't want to be called a surrender monkey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so how they basically shamed me into supporting that war. Yeah. And um, uh, I've sort of never really forgiven Laura Ingram for that. Yeah, I, I think the whole experience made me realize 2004, 2005, how, how little I knew. And then mm -hmm. I started reading Steve Saylor regularly in 2006. And I realized that America was in an insoluble situation in Iraq and Afghanistan. And... Uh, I was able to shift from being a conservative to someone who's more biologically based uh, right winger. But I saw mm. by by 2004, 2005, the, the problems with conservatism. And uh, by, by 2006, it was really Steve Saylor that helped me get clarity. It was a humbling experience because I was, I didn't think deeply about how to conduct the war and whether it was a good idea, but I was certainly emotionally behind you know, smashing the, the terrorists and mm. going to war with the terrorists. And and then by 2004, I just saw how, what a disaster and what quicksand we were in. Yeah, 
That's no, it for was sure. Good to, it was good to learn that I didn't know much, that, that my basic instincts were not necessarily helpful in understanding the world around me. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, but the thing is, is now both of them are uh, Ingram, Ingram and uh, Ingram. Gota, and, yeah, they, they've learned their lesson. Yeah. And they're now basically non-interventionists. Non yeah. Yeah. They're Trumpians now. I think that's been a journey a lot of us have taken, I guess. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was a humbling of America. And for me, it was a humbling of my own ability to understand the world. Realized that I didn't understand it nearly as well as I thought I did. Yeah. Yeah. But, oh, also, I was lucky. I was, I was still very much a Dennis Prager acolyte. And mm. he did not support the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So, oh, interesting. Huh. So I was not as gung-ho as your average Republican maybe even your average politically involved person because lots of Democrats were very much on board with invading Iraq. So so listening to Prager over the years, he would often recount a conversation he had on a bus in the Middle East and he's someone, I think an Iraqi told him, oh, Iraqis are the cruelest people in the world. And so Prager saw that uh, trying to occupy and build this nation up was not likely to succeed. And so... Uh, I mean, I remember hearing Prager say that from like the late 1980s, from the first time I heard him. So I think I was more skeptical of foreign intervention than than your average uh, gung ho American. Interesting. Now I I haven't really heard of Prager. wasn't Was he that big back then? When yeah, he when? was nationally syndicated, starting in something like 99 or 2000. No, he probably wasn't as big as he is now, but he's still. Yeah, nationally I didn't really start hearing about him until after like 2010 ish. Um, so he wasn't really on, I don't know. I would, I wasn't a big AM. Was he a mostly AM listener? There yeah. was one like talk station that was FM. He wasn't on that station. So I didn't, I guess I didn't hear about it. But do you have any favorite talk show hosts? Uh, Laura Ingram back then? Yeah. Um, I liked Savage. Yeah. Because my mother actually likes, he she got me into Savage, believe it or not. Um, you know, uh, and I still like him. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't really listen to the radio anymore, except the Bone, which I actually don't listen to anymore anymore, because uh, it's too repetitive. You know, I was listening to this hard rock station for a while, mm -hmm. and uh, after. After a few months, I just the amount of repetition that goes on at commercial radio yeah. is unbearable. Yeah. It's just simply unbearable. No matter, you know, I was trying to appreciate it in a sort of ironic way, yeah. and I simply couldn't. It was just so unbearable. It was so much of it, just the same thing over and over. And then, like half of these hard rock songs are completely unlistenable. You know, that's like this hair metal kind of stuff. It's just terrible. Yeah, no air supply. <laughs> so uh, someone, I was, I'm all out of love for the hard rock. Someone yeah. hit me up on Facebook and said, I was just listening to Air Supply last night and I thought of you. And it was a bloke. He said, not romantically, but uh, he had tickets to an Air Supply concert in something like uh, 2004. And uh, I'd often helped him out. So he gave me the tickets. And so I took a date. So in, in 2004, I was 38 and my date was uh, 24. She'd never heard of Air Supply. And she said it was the first uh, rock concert she'd been to where people didn't get up and dance the whole time. 
I, uh, I've only been to uh, two rock concerts my whole life. I, not, I don't, I'm very comfortable in, uh, uncomfortable in big crowds. But you know who my very first rock concert was? No. ACDC. Wow. You're ready to rock. <laughs> the, for those about to rock. We salute you. <laughs> which is idiotic. Uh, but I couldn't believe how disgusting it was. Like, uh, it was in the old Boston Garden, which you probably don't remember because you're not really part of Boston, but sort of the old sports stadium, you know? And it was just A, it was super loud and P, people, everyone was smoking pot and like a certain percentage were just puking. <laughs> it was just terrible. Well, Russia has blocked uh, Twitter and Facebook. Oh, the information war, huh? Is that going to keep you up at night? Yeah, I'm really worried about it. <laughs> so you never spent time in Boston. Boston has a very uh, interesting culture. Um, never been, never even been to Boston. Yeah. I uh, almost went. I, I was... I was invited to speak at an American Jewish journalism conference, but yeah. uh, they weren't uh, paying my way, uh, mm. so or putting me up. So I thought about going briefly, but then it was like, nah. That was back in two thousand and four when I wrote a book on American Jewish journalism. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now I wouldn't recommend living there, but it does have a certain. Um, it's it's a distinctive place, you know. It's got. Um, you know, certain places have a very distinct feel, and Boston does have a st- distinct feel because it's dominated by uh, universities. There's so many universities in such a small area that everyone feels like a student. Everyone, good high percentage of the people are students, and all of the buildings are either you know universities or hospitals. Just a lot of public institutions there crammed into a relatively small uh, geography and. It's kind of interesting, but is it is it a little bit like uh, San Francisco versus L.A.? Oh, it Boston is. It is. They're very comparable. The same so. same thing, right? Yeah, same idea. Dense. It's dense. Uh, uh, strong attention to our uh, architectural detail. Yeah. Um, and as you know, um, yeah, it's a walkable place. It's very walkable and accessible by public transport. Which is true of New York, but I don't think that's true of LA. And how much do you miss it? What do you miss? Uh, I don't miss it much at all. Now, I do miss a certain... There was a period of time before the internet where it was a very much in-person place, right? So there would be... There was a large group of us and we would always meet at the same place. And, you know, it was around the chess scene. And... We would socialize, and it was just understood. You, everyone showed up in the early evening, and it was just such a really enjoyable style life, style of life. Um, being able to meet and joke with people in person, you know, uh, which I don't doesn't really happen anymore. At least for me, maybe for you, synagogue, but uh, that type of in-person thing has been replaced by the internet since. And how good were you at chess? Were you as good as David, top 2000? I'm not as good. I'm pretty good, but I'm not as good as David. I never, you know, 
I had these really, you know, adolescent aspirations, but then when I really became clear how much, how hard it is to really get good at a high level and how much time you have to put into it, and then how little you get paid, and you know, you have to be ultra good to get anything approximating a, a, a living. I, I abandoned it. I just played very casually and recreationally. So, so I, playing I, chess isn't a reliable way to make a living. <laughs> it's it's uh it's less than that. You know, it's a colossal waste of time. It's fun and enjoyable, and uh, but yeah, it's 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 tantamount. It's it's equivalent to playing video games. You know, um, so I wouldn't recommend it for people, but. Uh, there's people that play chess have a lot of interests. There's just, it attracts a certain eccentric type person that's got a lot going upstairs. And so they usually have other aspects and other talents that just make them sort of interesting, curious people and very fun to talk to. Uh, so if for no other reason, I think chess players are just fun people to know. Um, but they're also incredibly averse to work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in fact, their whole game, they think because they can play chess, they can sort of outsmart the system, you know? So, um, you know, they get into any sort of scheme. They're, they're schemers, you know? <laughs> Like uh, card counting, blackjack, you've heard about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of that going around. A lot of people were involved in these card counting teams. And um, and that's sort of a caper in and of itself. And it's the source of like some of the most, the funniest stories you can imagine, the most incredibly uh, entertaining situations that you could uh, think about, you know, trying to outsmart a casino and all of the, all of the, all of the uh, theater that goes along with it. It's just some of the funniest stories ever, ever told. So I had a relationship and it's uh, excitement and eroticism had pretty much petered out by the, the sixth month. We we stopped having sex. And then yeah. she urged me to take up playing chess. And yeah. so I started reading all these books on, on chess because I wanted to beat her. And yeah. uh, playing chess extended our relationship another six months. So instead of having sex, we played chess. You sublimated those feelings. Well, I didn't have those feelings anymore. They, uh, they died. I think, like, I think we went the last six months, and I didn't, don't think we had sex. Then after we broke up, mm -hmm. and, and like a year or two later, you know, got back. Then we had a lot of sex. But uh, you didn't break out the chessboard, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long. But yeah, having having uh, having a common commitment and enjoyment of, of playing chess doubled the length of the relationship funny a lot of people do take an interest in chess and they, they have a um i've got a lot of respect for playing chess that i really didn't deserve right if people see it and they imagine this great you know high-powered intellect must be involved and so they have this respect for it and um i've been able to trade on that <laughs> I don't know, I've, I've, I've really made off well because of that. Like, uh, uh, it's benefited me greatly. How? How has it benefited you? 
well they'll say you know you know we'll, we'll chit chat and it'll be um maybe a job interview and like you know what are your hobbies oh yeah i like to play uh chess down the square you play chess you play chess and you're one of those guys that's awesome that's really and you can tell that they're genuinely impressed um so i think i've gotten jobs um people were just basically overestimated my uh, abilities just to, on that basis i think like do that like um he plays chess right and uh, he's quite good i think he's almost master level yeah um I mean, I can't take that away from him. He, he's a very, very skilled chess player. We played, I don't know if you were part of that stream, but we were on some live stream and we were playing one another for like an hour. It was kind of fun. It was in the Babs cast days. And who won? Uh, Duvid won the majority, but I won I, I won a, a good percentage. You took I some pawns. You, huh? you, tra you, you traded your, your rook and, and your knight and you got a pawn. Yeah, chain sack, yeah. Now, David, David, uh, um, yeah, he beat me pretty handily, I have to say. But he wasn't uh, undefeated. But he was also carrying on a conversation with Brundlefly at the time. So, uh, uh, I, I have to put my 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 victories in parentheses, shall we say? <laughs> Get it? Parentheses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay all right so uh yeah i don't know i just figured i'd try a double call thanks man all right all right blessings all right, good job all right good job all right peace okay Thank some you. uh important news here ukrainian uh ukraine museums they're desperately trying to preserve the priceless hunter biden paintings latest news here from the babylon b the shells have begun exploding in the heart of kiev Museums have rushed to protect their most prized valuable pieces. The original artwork of a once-in-a-generation talent, Hunter Biden. The Louvre may have Van Gogh and the Mona Lisa, but here we have Coke on Coke by Hunter Biden. I will never forget when he sold us this piece. He said to me, Ivan, I don't know how I got here or where my pants are, but can you get me to the airport? Ah, what an artist he is. Most of the paintings were initially purchased for the Burisma boardroom, with the tacit understanding that then Vice President Joe Biden would look out for Ukraine. Museum owners waged huge bidding wars to acquire the pieces, knowing that beyond the remarkable art, each painting came with the assurance that the United States would have their back. We were lucky to get our hands on Hooked by Hookers. It's quite a popular piece. But more importantly, we know it means that President Biden will take care of Ukraine in our time of need. I hear the planes overhead, the air raid sirens. I do not panic. No, the United States will come to help. So science should maybe CNN. Have you ever heard of it? Apparently it's still on the air even though nobody really watches it. However, those that do watch it are under the dangerous impression that they're actually a real news channel, which might put them in a precarious situation. You've allowed accusations against me and millions of law-abiding Americans as child murderers. Please follow what I'm saying. You allow the accusations believe you. to stand. I don't You've believe done you and I, I don't You've believe done you. Nothing to child murderers. Here are some signs you might be watching too much CNN. Sign number one. You think the pandemic is still going on. If you find yourself saying, when the pandemic is over, or the new normal, you're probably watching too much CNN. You still think one of these investigations is going to get Trump. 
The walls are closing in any day now. The walls are closing in. The walls closing in on President Donald Trump. You still haven't left your house in over two years. It's time to turn off the CNN, go outside and get some fresh air. You haven't heard of any of Biden's foreign or domestic failures, and you think the president's doing a pretty good job. What does the press get wrong when covering Biden's agenda? Just don't Google Biden Vatican. What happens next? Here's one. You still call ivermectin horse dewormer. Ivermectin, apparently given to deworm animals. You walk by a fiery riot and think to yourself, ah, what a mostly peaceful protest. If this is your immediate instinct, you may have an oversaturation of CNN. You're at the airport. A lot. This is less of a symptom and more of a root cause. But if you're at the airport, you're probably watching a lot of CNN. You drop to the floor and convulse anytime you see a MAGA hat. Now, there's a direct correlation with how much CNN you watch and how long you spend in a fetal position. Okay, how effective are the um, vaccines? Um, well, you know, the head I of CDC. think... I can tell you where I was when the CNN feed came, that it was 95% effective on the vaccine. So many of us wanted to be hopeful. So many of us wanted to say, okay, this is our ticket out, right? Now we're done. Um, so I think we had perhaps too little caution and too much optimism um, for some good things that came our way. I, I really do. I, I think all of us wanted this to be done. Nobody said waning when, when you know, mm -hmm. oh, this vaccine's going to work. Oh, well, <laughs> maybe it'll work, it'll wear off. Um, nobody said, well, what if the next variant doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as potent against the next variant. Where could we have improved? Okay, wait, wait, wait. Um, Where's just the thread? Here we go. Um, and then maybe the other thing I'll say is this area of gray. Um, I have frequently said, um, you know, we're going to lead with the science. Science is going to be the foundation of everything we do. That is entirely true. I think public heard that as science is foolproof. Science is black and white. Science is immediate and we get the answer and then we, you know, make the decision based on the answer. And the truth is, Science is great, and science is not always immediate, and it, sometimes it takes months and years to actually find out the answer, but you have to make you know, decisions in a pandemic before you have that answer. It's interesting. It's variant. Okay. I think, uh, think that's about it. Time to get ready for Shabbos. I've been to cities that never closed down from New York to Rio and old London town, but no matter how far or how wide I roam, I still call Australia home. I'm always traveling. I love being free, so I keep leaving the sun and the sea, but my heart lies waiting over the foam. I still call Australia home. While the sons and daughters spinning around the world away from their families and friends, but as the world gets older and colder, it's good to know where your journey ends. Someday we'll all be together once more and all the ships come back to the shore. Then I realize something I've always known. I still call Australia home. Bye-bye and good Shabbos.